Curse. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 50. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guests on this 50th episode of Speak and Destroy are Warbringer vocalist John Kevill and drummer Carlos Cruz. The duo from one of the most exciting survivors of the neo-thrash revival share a dense knowledge and passion for the genre, diving in here on the chemistry, serendipity, and near-scientific structure that makes Metallica and bands like Slayer, Bathory, and Creator so great. We get into a deep conversation about art versus craft, the accidental brilliance born of limited resources, and the stories of how each of them got into music in the first place. We also rank the first five Metallica albums and talk about all of the ways Warbringer has drawn inspiration from Metallica as they've created six well-received albums since 2008, including their latest, Weapons of Tomorrow. Carlos is the former drummer for the band Hexen, filled in for his friends in Power Trip, and replaced the late Nick Menza in Ohm, the instrumental rock-jazz fusion trio led by Chris Poland, the lead guitar player on the first two Megadeth albums. If you're enjoying Speaking Destroy, the best thing you can do to support the podcast right now is go into Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and leave a five-star rating and a nice review. I know every podcast asks you to do that, and that's because it really does help in terms of visibility for the podcast and people discovering what we're doing. Also, we have recently relaunched our website, speakanddestroy.com, where you can find more detailed information about the episodes as well as some brand new merch. It's funny because in this episode I talk about how we hadn't made Speak and Destroy merch yet, and since recording the episode, we in fact have. You can follow Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at Superhero HQ. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Super psyched to be at episode 50. So here it is my conversation with John Kevill and Carlos Cruz of Warbringer. This is Speak and Destroy. to kick off with hearing about your earliest musical discoveries and when the turning point was that you realized this went from something that you just appreciated to something you wanted to participate in and of course where and when Metallica figured into that journey. I got into metal it wasn't something that I was sort of given or handed I kind of sought it out I think that when I was a very young kid just in the 90s that a lot of like cool stuff you know in that 90s kid sense had electric guitars on it like you know the power rangers theme for instance or you know that kind of stuff and so without even having anyone that i knew in my family that listened to heavy metal i knew that i thought like is sweet you know (laughs) from like a very young age and it took me another like probably 10 years before i actually found that kind of music that i'd kind of always been looking for and it was old rock and roll and heavy metal uh hard you know 70s hard rock star you know starting your zip sabbath purple kind of thing and going from there so heavy metal from the origin chronologically is kind of how i got into it uh metallica figured in pretty early you know obviously they're one of the biggest names in metal they got metal in the name so you're not really in any doubt which genre you're listening to um 
And um, the first one I heard was Master of Puppets. Uh, and I remember I was actually on a Boy Scout trip, and one of the older kids, who I didn't really like that much, he was kind of a jerk, but he was like, hey, you got to know this one. And I was like, all right. Put on Master of Puppets, and I was like, oh, shit, I got to know this one. So that was uh, that was one of my early metal records that was pretty key. Black Album was the next one I heard. Uh, and then I kind of went backwards through the whole, like, classic Metallica-era discography um, and sort of, you know, like most of us do, kind of get that printed in your DNA. Those are all a bunch of memorable songs, and you can kind of recall any of them from the top of your head when you haven't listened to the album in years even, because that's the kind of songwriting they have. So I think that's something, uh, I think that for that reason, Metallica's a really great uh, foundational band for a guy who's going to go and make heavy metal because of that just sense of song, that sense of memorability. And that's kind of the first thing that struck me about him, I think. I think the point where I started going like, oh, I don't just enjoy this and I want to do it. Uh, you know, a couple of years later in that same journey, I had seen some of my first few concerts and Metallica actually wasn't one of them, but uh, you know, I'm listening to Metallica with my canon of classic heavy metal at this time. Cause it's still relatively new to me. And I remember I saw Iron Maiden on dance of death tour in Los Angeles. And I saw Bruce Dickinson fall like eight to 10 feet and uh, continue, you know, like get, they're going to take him to the hospital. He gets back on the stage and finishes the show after being off it for like five minutes because he mm -hmm. fell 10 feet, <laughs> you know. And I, I remember I'm like, this guy, you know, this guy's rich and famous. He's not made and he doesn't have to do that, you know. And I really respected that. And that that moment really made me kind of like see, OK, that, what what's my ethos? What kind of front man do I want to be? And uh, I also saw Metal Church at the Ventura Theater which is the same time I actually met Adam Carroll, who ended up being the guitar player for Warbringer ever yeah. since. So uh, so it was that as well. And I remember at Metal Church, the moment that got me, like, I got to do this. They started with uh, Start the Fire from the Dark, and they had, they had Ronnie Monroe on vocals at the time, who does a great high falsetto, and he just starts the set with, Wah! you know, one of those metal screams, <laughs> uh, like, you know, on the four count. And I was just like, yeah, I got to do that. And I had never played music before, but it was kind of the collective experience of these couple concerts. I had only seen a couple and just being young and excited about it and always having this passion for just the sound of guitars. Plus then, you know, great records like, uh, you know, you could name all the all the early Metallicas, you could name all the early Iron Maidens, all the early Megadeths, you know, just the canon of classic metal mm -hmm. in general is such a strong musical canon that there's just there's hardly anything in music that can that comes close to me. And I and to this day, I feel like that. And I've heard that, you know, that those records didn't change at all. They're the same damn records they were. And I still feel that way. So that's uh, I think that feeling I had then continues now. And that's, you know, that's why I'm here on this podcast to tell you what great records I think those are. Yeah. And, uh, it's to try to make a record that feels like that to other people. That's kind of my guiding star is I want a record that does to people who hear it what you know say master of puppets or something did to me when i was 15 16 and i heard it the first time man uh you guys are uh, already perfect guests for this so uh carlos my story is uh my story's a little different pretty much the opposite where music runs in my family from my father my grandfather uh all musicians who migrated over to this country and pursued it and it was just you know in my uh, environment, a part of my childhood upbringing. And, you know, there were instruments always and, and live music or, you know, garage bands, whatever they were going to be. It was, I was always surrounded by it. So uh, I don't think I had 
any inclination on doing it myself until I was about nine or ten years old. Uh, and that's when the interest really sparked. So it just kind of started off with whatever my elder sisters were listening to at the time, whatever was on the radio. And that's like the first thing I was exposed to. And my older sister was getting into the popular rock music. My older cousin, maybe about four years older than me, uh, doing the same. So both of them had played a part in getting me into rock music, where my cousin was starting to get into skateboarding and punk rock like the Misfits and Ramones. So I had that. Uh, exposed to me and then my sister was more into whatever was popular on the radio as far as rock at the time so it would have been you know no doubt or blink 182 or those late 90 acts uh, and then she started to get into groups like system of a down and slipknot when they first came out in the you know late 90s early 2000s so pretty much led me to like gravitate towards playing music because she was a drummer she was an inspiration. There were instruments always around the house. So, you know, you pick up the drums here, you pick up the little little bit of guitar there, mm-hmm. uh, all kind of self-taught, really just going off of what you know. And we took, a, you know, already obsessed with System of a Down, maybe, you know, three, four years into it. Uh, by the time I was, I'm going to say, give or take 12, my family went on a, a vacation over the summer. And I recall going to this, I think it was in Laughlin, Nevada. You know, we would kind of go between uh, wherever we had relatives, whether it was Texas, Nevada, uh, different parts uh, close to California. And we went into this kind of strip mall, um, not necessarily a strip mall, it's what's the outlet mall type of thing. And they had a, a discount store, Music for Less or something, you know, not a major chain or anything. But we, we were scrolling through CDs and my older sister comes up to the M section and she picks up two CDs. Uh, one of them's blue bunch of lightning on it one of them's kind of red burgundy had a bunch of white crosses on it and i'd never seen these before in my <laughs> life so she's looking at them and she's like which one should i buy and i'm like i have no idea you know she turns she turns them over and you see the track listing and one of them you know she's like oh i really like this song fire, fire with fire but i really like this song called sanitarium and i'm like cool go with that one and that's the one she bought so she didn't even get to open it or play it first or do anything. As soon as we got into the car, I, I swiped it from her. I opened it. I put it in the CD player as I was sitting in the back seat, and battery kicks in. And I, I'll never forget, you know, I was already inclined because my I come from Mexican heritage, and, and that's a part of my family. So musically, they're always using acoustic instruments and acoustic mm. guitar. Mm-hmm. So when battery opens with that, uh, you know, it, it was something like I was already kind of familiar with. So it was kind of soothing and and I was I was ready for it. I was like, oh, this is a great piece. And then it explodes. And then when that main riff kicked in, my life changed because I had never heard anything played so fast, so furiously, so tight. And then even when that little mini in between verse solo happens, that little Kirk Shredder. Uh, I remember even out loud just going, oh, shit. And my mom turned around and yelled at me. She's like, hey, watch your language. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah, that that was like the musical moment that just kind of sparked. And I took music very seriously from that point on because I was like, this is the next step for me. I could already play System of a Down on drums. I could already, uh, you know, kind of jam and, and do that thing. But this was the next frontier of, you know, the the, the speed of the double bass drumming etc so you know it was funny because you know the song puppets kicks in and i was like no too slow I, and I, I i think i just spent the rest of the day listening to battery like i didn't even check out the rest of the record i was just obsessed with what that song did for me and then mm-hmm. obviously you know ended up learning the rest of the discog and uh from that and that same summer alone uh, you know the next family vacation wherever we hit the following weeks i got ride the lightning and then came back home to la and you know got justice and a friend of mine gifted me 
some of the later stuff like reload uh, when we went back into school people were just like trading cds and doing that sort so uh, it was kind of all over the place but puppets and lightning were my first two and uh, consequently still are my you know, I, I don't think there's better heavy metal records that uh, capture what it is I want out of music. And, uh, you know, I aim to do the same uh, with, with whatever project I'm pursuing. But ultimately, yeah, those are the qualities that we find a lot in Warbringer. Now, with these new two records that we've done are, you know, sizable heavy metal that just, uh, like you said, translates really well into a sense of song and just gives you a hell of a lot more to offer than just your typical, you know, thrash and speed yeah, and this makes me actually want to listen to you. I want to uh, jump off into a little tangent, which happens on here, and that's why I like the podcast space, because um, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of other things I want to talk about on that trajectory. But you mentioned, you know, that uh, sense of familiarity kind of is a cultural and like heritage sort of touchstone, you know, mm -hmm. hearing those acoustic guitars. And it reminds me of something that isn't talked about that often, but has come up in conversation amongst friends before which is that, you know, when we think about the global reach of Metallica and the fact that mm -hmm. they are the biggest heavy metal band, you know, period, mm -hmm. and, you know, going into a bunch of countries for the first time where, where certainly metal bands and in some cases rock bands had yet to even enter. Sure. You know, I, I often wonder, aside from, you know, obviously the songs are incredible, the live show's incredible, and you can attribute their success to those things primarily but you could also make the argument that there are plenty of bands with great records and great live shows that haven't mm -hmm. translated in the same way internationally so it's like what are some of those intangibles you know and i think you kind of touched on that and and i've often thought given that lars mm -hmm. you know was born in denmark uh had this very sort of bohemian european upbringing like you know his dad is like the coolest guy on earth right sure. and um and was you know traveling around as a teenager and, and chasing after deep purple and motorhead and right and then you know ends up this teenager in la who's uh you know gifting the new wave of british heavy metal to people that he's meeting to the community around him yeah exactly i think that's a big part in uh the, di the a different set of skill set and a different part of uh his upbringing and culture yeah. That allowed him to do stuff like that, you know, where, you know, you meet somebody like James Hetfield, apparently being just a really shy kid with, you know, really tough uh, upbringing. And you meet somebody else who's outspoken and, and likes to put himself out there and, you know, uh, really will take whatever chance he, you know, is, is necessary in order to, like you said, spread the music out there. When you're one of like the three people that know about New Wave British Heavy Metal in L.A. at the time, you know, that, that translates and having that skill set of... Uh, I, you know, it, it kind of becomes like the sum of the whole where it's like, you know, when they first met and started doing their thing, they were the best of players and together they grew, you know, as songwriters mm -hmm. rather than having, you know, the utmost technical uh, capability behind the instrument. Um, like some of their peers were obviously way better musicians growing up in the scene, but uh, that sense of song and I guess right time, right place being, um, the you know, at the forefront of the whole thing. Sure. Where, you know, where they're already playing gigs. Uh, in LA and being, you know, kind of shunned out because they're too, uh, they're too punk for the metal clubs and too metal for the punk clubs. And you go up to the Bay Area and you already have, you know, a scene brewing out there thanks to Exodus and bands of the sort. But, you know, being the first ones to have the demo tape, being the first ones to uh, hit all the zines and, and kind of spread all that culture like, you know, the wildfire it did. And um, 
being the first ones to get signed and press a record and tour. Uh, you know what I mean? It was just they, they, they mm-hmm. did everything ahead of everybody else. Therefore, the trajectory seemed to hit them a lot sooner. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's just like core component of like most bands. And uh, these days it kind of happened the same way in, you know, 05 for Los Angeles again. And that was kind of the way that John and I met just doing the same idea. They had a band. We had a band. Locals. Everybody would congregate depending on where, what part of uh, Los Angeles County or Ventura County or even, you know, OC you were from. But we all had an interest. We, none of us were into the new music that was coming out, the new popular bands of uh, the American scene in 05 or whatever was going on. It was like Metallica drew us into that culture. And then everybody kind of dug deeper, whether it was deeper into thrash metal, speed metal, heavy metal, into the extreme stuff, black metal, death metal, etc. So uh same idea it's, it's cool to see that uh resurgence kind of happen and and it just kind of it's cyclical you know what i mean with the yeah. way it happened back then is the way it happened now where i would go see john and warbringer you know in 06 at my local spot cobalt cafe when i was you know a freshman in high school just hanging out learning about these records and they're already doing it you know full on mm-hmm. so same idea you know the way you kind of just put yourself out there because i would go hang out with uh, these guys when they were coming close to town or just travel out to hang out with them regardless of who it was. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Just a different skill set and a different fervor for music, um, depending on your culture. See, I was I was brought up with music and live yeah. music and, and being a part of these, you know, big family parties and uh, et cetera, where maybe John wasn't, so to speak. You know what I mean? So it was easier for me. And I already had the skill set to communicate with all these people from different walks of life and uh, immerse yeah, myself into a very... Time. Big time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was a skill set I kind of attribute to learning from Lars, where, you know, you, you already have the kind of, you're comfortable with putting yourself out there. Yeah, and when you think about, you know, <laughs> he's, he's uh, you know, been knighted or whatever by Denmark. Damn. And he has a little uh, Danish flag hanging on his drums. Mm-hmm. But by, by the same turn, he's he's very American and he's very cosmopolitan in that, in that San Francisco mm-hmm. left coast sort of way. Uh you know, where um, Hetfield, you know, represents a bit more of that blue collar, middle America uh, grit. And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. something about that chemistry, of course. But yeah, but staying on this international tip for for a moment, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you were also just generationally speaking, when you're discovering the band, you've got Trujillo up there. And yeah, that that has to mean a lot. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. For sure. By the time I... uh really really delve into metallica it was the era in between uh newstead and them announcing trujillo so it was mm. one of those things where you know they weren't playing live they were announcing some of the new album stuff at the time it would have been saint anger but luckily i caught them in that period in between mm-hmm. to uh to see okay saint anger dropped but i was already interested in what they were doing their you know prior discography so i I knew the comparison, but because I was young, I was open to St. Anger just because it was fast and Mm -hmm. the 90s records weren't, uh, you know, and this one was metal for the time uh, and those 90s records weren't, you know what I mean? Uh, In comparison, you know, Load and Reload have their moments, uh, the covers, the symphony records, et cetera, they all have their I I, I like Outlaw Torn a lot, actually. I think that song's very underrated. (laughs) I've said on this podcast many times that the Outlaw Torn is a top 10 Metallica song for me. And and and, and, as, and as and as you could, I guess I called a good one then. <laughs> yeah, and as you can imagine, they're like you know, ninety percent of the guests are like, "Which record is that on?" <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like, no, I'd yeah. say I grew up with those uh, evenly, kind of equated to the the early stuff. Obviously, we worshipped the first five, 
and what they were able to do in, you know, that those 10 years. But, you know, I, I mean, yeah, you, you kind of I take it with a grain of salt because it was like, what else was happening in 1996, 7, 8, etc.? Um, it, it, it was the new guards. It wasn't necessarily Metallica's time. They were already, you know, rolling in platinum records where it was whatever was coming out, the Panteras and the Sepulturas leading into the, you know, the scene that John grew up in, being the corns and the limp biscuits. You know, I'm, I'm younger than John. <laughs> the stuff that was in yeah. when I was in high school, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, four years younger than everybody Metallica else. trying to climb on that train to an extent, you know? Yeah, and I mean, they tried we, to stay with the times, you know, because because 80s well, thrash metal was like, I mean, heck, people called the band bringer the thrash revival or thrash resurgence because thrash metal had been not a present force from about like 92 to 2005, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in like a pure few, sense of it, yeah, like pure yeah. thrash. Yeah, there's very mm-hmm. few like pure thrash releases in period that really make us splash. Mm-hmm. Uh, like yeah, you was, said, I think I think what you were saying earlier when you were talking about the early scene that we come from, it's like uh, it, it, I think that part of it was you get all the like the metalcore stuff that was really big in the early 2000s, and I felt like every screamer and every band sounded the same, and you're gonna hear the same breakdown chug part 500 mm-hmm. times. It's like it's like you put that against you know a ride the lightning or something, and you're like, how the mighty fallen metal they used to make. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, this whole canon of great records. And and, and I'll mm-hmm. say something I'll point out, too. Not only are these records heavy and extreme, they have diversity in songwriting and they have a sense of song. This, for me, this is like, you know, Metallica are like the flag wavers of this in all of the classic canon of thrash. Mm-hmm. The guys who like write thrash metal kind of like how, you know, Lars and James, you might say, are like, uh, you know, vaguely analogous to the Lennon and McCartney of thrash absolutely. metal. They're the real like, absolutely. songwriter guys, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so that sense of song in the, you know, in what I'd call the Lennon-McCartney sense, where your song is very, like, structured, very put together, and all the ideas are really coherent, it's got one theme, that all of those levels of songwriting, Metallica do it. Their songs are conceptual, they're about something, but they draw you in. Uh, all about the same thing they go about a different range of subjects they go about a different range of musical styles on those classic records there's an mm-hmm. evolution between the records but yet you can tell if you line them up from you know the starting point a kill them all you know bloody sledgehammer moving forward <laughs> uh, it, it ends up it, they didn't just take this you know throughout the canon and I would say justice to Black Album. They didn't just take some crazy left turn and that every new thing they did had a precedent in their previous records that made the whole growth feel very organic. So I, all of those things I just took told you are, uh, you know, as we're talking, the contrast between Carlos and my own background. He, he's a guy that grew up with music. I'm like a fucking analyzer. I'm, I'm sort of a, not a musically brained musician, if that makes sense. And that, that is, that's actually a strength. If I, or I've learned to play it as a strength because I work with other guys who are the other, you know, such as Carlos. Uh, but so I did my analysis on why my favorite records are my favorite. And uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I came up with is they have all these traits and that therefore I need to find a way to develop these traits in a way that fits our own band. And honestly, six records in, I, I think starting at record five, I feel like we've kind of pulled that off to an extent where I feel like, yeah, the thing I set out to do with this, I, I feel like we kind of succeeded at it. But then I think, man, it took me 10 years of doing this before I feel that I got to a can say to myself yeah you're pretty much doing what 
you set out to do. The 10 mm-hmm. years before that, I wouldn't say that about myself and my own work. It, it was a long uphill climb. So it really, when I compare myself and my own experience and career, you know, it's a very different time and I have influences that exist that didn't exist in 82, you know, 82, 83, mm-hmm. when Metallica's doing their early days, um, that it's like, wow, it's, it's so impressive that these guys were on it so quickly, you know, Ride the Lightning's a second record, you know, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's almost, uh, one almost gets a little envious. It's a different time, you know, of course, I can't, I can't go and invent metal genre when it's already being invented. I, I have to uh, be okay with basically trying to add to it because, you know, mm-hmm. I chose to play thrash metal. So, uh, you know, that's the best I can do. And th- I think that to that, I think there's a really strong artistic case to be made for that. But it's like, I just wonder, what would it be like to be that much on the cutting edge where you're you're like the guy in the world who said, damn, that Diamond record's really good. And I like this Blitzkrieg demo from the UK and all the shit that Lars and co were into, you know, and your Saxon, your Angel Witch, your early Iron Maiden. And you're like, what if this was heavier? What if this was crunchier, you know? And how one thing I wonder is, uh, like, I, I feel like Metallica, especially, like you said, Lars and his passion for all the, all the stuff that was coming out then, how he really had the finger his finger on the pulse of the newest, heaviest, most extreme thing that was coming out in that like early period uh i you know i feel like they were able to kind of synthesize a lot of influences that were just very very new then i think is uh perhaps you know and this is my speculation as a listener but i wonder if that guitar crunch on something like two records has anything to do with the guitar tone on ride the lightning because you know it's a huge shift in the tone and the crushingness of it Mm -hmm. between kill em all and lightning and ride the lightning is the first like really really famous record to have that that like you know even uh, even like Slayer Show No Mercy or bands that are ostensibly you know that are usually considered more extreme than Metallica or you know your Venom your Slayer or whatever doesn't have that guitar tone that's like you know and uh, yeah so where, where it's like guitar as, as percussion they're able to like synthesize everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That real and uh, thrash metal itself is a genre of just moves away from melody as its main form of expression to rhythm. You know, that itself is kind of new. I love your analytical brain on all this, by the way. Yeah, I always felt that that had to do with the component of thrash that is the punk side of it. I mean, that's kind of the point. You have you have priests, and then you have you know your speed metals like your Running Wilds and your Exciters, etc. And it's still very like taking Iron Maiden and just speeding it up, but. You know, once you have people like Cliff and James always uh, and Kirk repping the GBH and Discharge and the Misfits and you bring that and obviously Slayer being another one of those bands that heavily took that uh, DRI influence and brought it in and uh, sped everything up. But, yeah, that that extremity that, say, Iron Maiden record doesn't have compared to a Discharge record that came out the very same year mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the, the fusion of that is why I always love those early thrash records morphing from almost being like new album records into what they became. Obviously you hear show no mercy and kill them all uh, almost as like some, you know, show no mercy to me is the best like new album record that Slayer ever did. And then, you know, kill them all is probably the best punk record you're ever going to hear everywhere. And then when they, <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when they, when they get the ball rolling into lightning and hell awaits and that, then you start to hear, you know, thrash really being produced. Yeah, and I and I, I've always argued too that a big part of the Metallica formula is can be broken down to like Diamond Head plus Motorhead, 
You know, you've got the yeah, like exactly. epic like metal of of Diamond Head, longer and then, songs, yeah, less yeah. of them. And, and, know, and then they threw in the Motorhead yeah. like attack and aggression and like, you know, we're gonna get in a street fight like kind yeah. of vibe, you know. And and that's a lot of the greatest bands. You know, once upon a time, I, I did an interview with Villy from him, and he made a crack where he was like, he was like, hey, we're just typo negative and Black Sabbath meets you too. Cool. And and you think about that, and you're like, you know, it's it's not to say that him is a, a ripoff of any one of those bands, but that those are the elements that he took mm-hmm. and combined in a way that no one had combined yet, and then sure. put that through his own prism. And I feel like that's what Metallica did in synthesizing. I mean, you know, their first yeah, few set lists are like Diamond Head tribute shows. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what every band does, to be honest. Yes. I, I yeah, you imitate the essence. That's the essence of innovation is is taking existing stuff and, and imagining it in a new form. There, there yeah. you go. That's innovation because you yeah, can't the, the iPhone you can't wasn't do the first anything telephone. with stuff that doesn't exist yet. It yeah. has to be stuff yeah, yeah. that exists. Otherwise, you can't use it. Yeah. 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 When you think about like innovations with technology and gadgetry and everything, it's you know it's improvements upon uh, new ways of looking at things that are already uh, familiar to us. Sure. Or or th- or things that are only familiar to a few and that are being taken and reshaped in a way that that it's more broad and accessible and can be a gateway to point people back to those things. Yeah, and we were talking about that guitar tone and how that like developed, and it's like cool. You're 18 years old and you, you know Marshall amps, and you know you mm-hmm. have your Flying V guitars, and uh, you're maybe not that experienced, uh, maybe as a player in a live setting or in a rehearsal room, but you get into a studio. Now you've given you kind of give up a little bit of control to engineers and producers. And when you're really young and you're impressionable, you just kind of do what you're told because they take the lead. You know, 10 years into your career, you can have a say because you have an experience in that realm. So going from, you know, Marshall amps to, oh, now we're playing Mesa Boogie and we're recording in Europe and this is a new energy. This is a new vibe. You know, we've been on the road for X amount of time. Therefore, we're better players. You know, I guess that all attributes to, you know, um, you know, a, a Hetfield song like Motor Breath to a Hetfield song like Creeping Death. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that jump, you know, whether it's in songwriting or whether it's in tone or, you, you know what I mean? Like everything just kind of is a practice. So, you know, you take the first Warbringer record, John will tell you, you know, he'll probably facepalm, you know, himself, you know, <laughs> thinking about that first Warbringer record. Yeah. Because, because of the experience that's had, all the of shows course. played live, all the studios, uh, you know, experiences from that point on. You know, you get a very different, uh, even the Sonics, you know, Puppets and Lightning are probably the most closely related stylistically and uh, production wise. And, you know, the uh, aesthetic of the band, obviously, you know, even uh, down to the track order. Yeah. yeah. And that dynamic and that flow, you know, what, you know, the, the Kirk and Cliff influence, no more Mustaine influence, a part of music anymore, um, you know, leading into, OK, that change into justice and then the, then the next change in the, into the new decade of the black album you know you usually by the circumstances that are happening so that happens that, that happened to our band all the time you know record three is very different from record four uh and obviously john saying number five and the newest feel like the most war bringer uh with, with everything that we've learned since so we, we we relate the discography always me personally always back to uh, those first five Metallica for sure. Well, John and I must be must be uh, communicating telepathically because literally my next question that I was gonna, I was going to say, hey John, since you're you share an, uh, an analytical mind with me, I bet you've 
broken down the formula of the track order uh, <laughs> yeah, ride really. the light you know it's oh like, yeah it's like ride the lightning Definitely. puppets and justice they all start mm-hmm. with a banger yep. uh track track two is the title track track four is a ballad you know the uh, no, number three is usually a groove heavy number <laughs> yeah the instrumental is towards the end There's, of the album exactly, the, the, the yeah. difference is the instrument okay so uh so lightning L- lightning ends uh Ends with Cthulhu. Yeah. The other ones put a, a Damage Inc. or a Dyer's Eve. After. Yeah, the, the other two records that's, are, are, are bookended by bangers. Yeah, it's like yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Those those closers are some of the most like if you want to because I don't think Metallica is like the thrashiest thrash metal band. That has nothing to do with quality. The records are some of the best, no, but. I hear you. Uh, they're not like the most full speed ahead when you compare, especially when you get into your like creator, early Sepultura, that whole end of Thrash, the extreme stuff, which is a lot of what we're influenced by. So Metallica is like, they don't haul ass as much as a lot of other bands. You got songs like, uh, you know, you got stuff like uh, The Thing That Should Not Be, which are more like lurchy and groovy and stuff. And that's a territory that a lot of the other Thrash bands, I think, aren't able to operate in as well. Uh, Metallica are uniquely pretty good at those kind of songs on their thrash albums, but I really like those two closers, man, because that's where they're just like, you know, full speed ahead. I really like those. Uh, Dyer's Eve in particular with the kind of like emotional family, personal lyrics with that blast of banger. It really oh, goes yeah. well, and it has a real uh, thing. But as far as the track order, uh, okay, so first off, when Carlos and I are writing the records, and the last two Warbringer records, uh, Carlos and I have been probably like the, the lead songwriters on it you know it's not it's not all our ideas but we've been sort of taking point on it collect the cruise keeble unit here and uh we're always talking to each other you know we got to get inside each other's heads so we can be on the same page to make a record we both really like you know And, and that's an important part of the songwriting process is that partnership um but we always analogize whatever we're doing to the first few Metallica records because a couple of reasons. One, that sense of goal of like we're trying to make these records that you could, you know, it almost you say a name like Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets to another metalhead. It's like you're talking about a, a stone tablet almost. It's Absolutely. there, you know, it's, yeah. it's the canon, you know, it, that that kind of sense to a great metal record that you feel you'd feel about like you know the first five Sabbaths or the first several I. Iron Maidens or the first several Metallicas or, you know, or maybe all of them if, if you're, you know, uh, depending on who you are. But, you know, the records that are like you think are the best. And so because of that, uh, Carlos and I use the language of especially the first four Metallicas uh, to describe our own flow of records. We're like, oh, yeah, Defiance of Fate is kind of like uh, – our take on like a fade to black or sanitarium or a one or something on this new record coming out. That's the type of song we've never done before. Uh, we we want to do the epic type numbers because they they have that epic sense. Uh, on our last record, we did this 11 minute song. When the guns fell silent, you mm-hmm. said you said him was like typo negative and Black Sabbath and U two or something. Uh, when the guns fell silent, our lingo before we wrote it, you know, uh, was. It was uh, and justice for all, specifically the the epic moments, like uh, specifically, specifically that middle part on "To Live Is to Die," which might mm-hmm. be my personal favorite like bit of music they ever wrote. Uh, I I don't know if I'd say "To Live Is to Die" if I'd rate it over Cthulhu or Orion as Orion, a total yeah. piece, but but that one movement because I mean these are all really great songs, of I course, think. yeah. But that one movement just gets me, and it has this like stoic 
proud, heroic, kind, of, but sad kind of feeling. And I was like, I made Carlos listen to that. And like, he knew it already, but I'm like, you got to listen to that. Listen, it sounds like a statue crumbling into the sea. It's so epic, you know? It's Doris. It's the Doris statue yeah, crumbling yeah. in. Yeah. Crumbling on the stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying it's not like to crush anybody. Kinda, you know? uh, but, but it's so, we were thinking of like, hey, what if we blended that with something like, you know, Hammerheart, Twilight of the Gods era Bathory? And that fundamental fusion of like Metallica in epic mode plus Bathory in epic mode, because these are two bands that have a lot of different modes. Uh, but that kind of fusion, you never fucking hear anywhere. And when we started trying, like fucking around with these kind of riffs, and the, you know, Carlos started coming up with some stuff in this vein, and I was like, why has no one done this that I know? You know, <laughs> shit. And, and then you're, and you're, you're, and you're combining, uh, so, yeah, exactly, because yeah. you're, you're combining those very specific eras of very specific things in a way that hasn't been done and then that's being filtered through you know even the early part of the conversation where we're talking about just the two of you in the band let alone the rest of the guys your diverse backgrounds and how you came to things and whatever and that's all where and that's something i think people misunderstand because as you know as, as someone who's interviewed countless bands in my career um so there are so many bands who fall into this trap of like yeah i don't really think we sound like anybody else like it's really hard to compare us like we have our own thing and it's like you oh, don't no. you don't have to run from <laughs> that because yeah right you know who you sound like yeah <laughs> you exactly. know who you're ripping off yeah they know and, and if you and if you're doing it correctly it's still coming out unique because it's you you know what yeah. i mean so it's like mm -hmm. it's like man don't be afraid to embrace the, no, not at all. the pieces you're taking because that's what makes it interesting and exciting and that and that's that you know it's like the <laughs> that stupid millennial whoop thing in pop songs where mm -hmm. it, it's used so much oh, yeah it's because it's familiar whoop. right it's like a <laughs> like a committee like figured that out you know with in a lab somewhere uh, on a on a smaller scale and in a less offensively contrived way you know when i first heard warbringer me as somebody who you know i'm bit older than you guys so i was i was a teenager in the late 80s and early 90s so that as somebody is. who kind of lived through that thrash movement you know not certainly not in the way that like you know a rob flynn or something did he's older sure. he's older than i am but mm -hmm. but for me to you know i bought and justice for all on street date because i was a metallica Sick. fan a year or two before right <laughs> so, awesome. so having lived through that you know when Gosh, it was probably Marco uh, when he was still at Century Media. Even, oh, Christ. you know, when I when I got introduced to Warbringer, and then you yeah. know, as bands like Toxic Holocaust and Bonded by Blood and all these bands started popping up, I was that mm -hmm. target audience that was like, I know this, you know, like cool. I recognize what this is, and that didn't right that didn't mean that it was just like, oh, these bands are just like copycats. It's like no, this is a new take through like younger passionate people that are discovering this music and and putting their own spin on it and, and carrying the torch and, th and that's where i've i've respected that and that also leads me to something else i wanted to talk about with you guys which is you know bands always hate being categorized together as see and even you know it was great to see the big four finally happen after the big four mm -hmm. was something that journalists and fans had had named and referred to for so long but it's important also to remember the history where everybody was trying to carve out their own space and how many times each of them said they didn't really have much to do with the other. <laughs> and I don't mean just those four bands. I mean scenes in general. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, uh, to put another genre spin on it, I did a uh, a couple of cover stories on the band Dashboard Confessional back in the early 2000s. And 
I met that guy, you know, great dude, back when Dashboard was literally just his side project from his other band. It was just him and an acoustic guitar. And by the time I was doing the second cover story for Alternative Press on Dashboard around like 2002, 2003, he was, uh, you know, signing to a major label, doing a record with a big producer. He had added an electric band. And I was told by management and the publicist that I wasn't allowed to use the word emo in our conversation. <laughs> and then to fast forward to 2020 and the dude is out there playing emo night, <laughs> you know, it's like, right. It's like, dude, just embrace it, you know? And it's like, so I look at it. So I'm sure. curious, I'm curious for your take on it because I think that there's something exciting. Of course, everybody's unique. Of course, everybody adds their own flavor to the stew and carves out their own thing. But with that being said, I, I think that uh, a band like Warbringer only benefited from kind of leading the pack of this like revival or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's like with pop punk, there's like the sure. pop punk revival. Yeah, I think right it was now, kind know? of cyclical. Like, yeah, like I mentioned, uh, things being cyclical where it was like, cool, you had your Motley Crue's and that scene coming out of L.A. So you had the Metallica's of the world, yeah. you know, uh, putting out No Life to Leather to rebel against it. And uh, totally. ideally, it was kind of the same idea. It was the same time period, like I said, you know, where where we are children of the late 80s, 90s, into the early 2000s. We saw the music and the metal specifically that was coming out and we weren't into that we didn't care yeah you guys were uh, rebelling against the shitty new metal which was which was uh, was the hair metal of that era yeah yeah maybe maybe they were bands who were influenced by the same records you know the the thrash scene and the death metal scene etc but the way it was coming out through their filter whether it was the new guard of of the lamb of gods and the triviums at that particular time we poison and all of those bands we went further we'll name check yeah we went the opposite way uh to go a little further into the uh the underground you know what i mean yes. where you have even you have your a-listers like your big four and then the scene that came after them you had at that particular time you had to do a little digging because they weren't as active you know what i mean we champion mm-hmm. exodus and bands of the sort but even going a little further down into it uh whether it was the german scene the canadian scene the south american scene etc yes. those are the things we wanted and like dove into and we found you know like we were talking about bastardry and that's another major influence for adam keevil and myself uh, mm-hmm. and we see their discography and their first six records as important as the first five metallica ones oh yeah so you know we we dug deeper uh and went really into the obscurities of uh extreme metal and and that was consequently why we decided to do the style you know that we uh embarked upon so it was kind of the media that put the thrash sticker on it ultimately even though the first warbringer record has elements of death metal and black metal and other uh, extreme influences mm-hmm. uh, it was it was never any i mean maybe now the neo thrash or the revival isn't as substantial as it was say in like 2008 2009 uh but luckily we are a surviving act from that kind of explosion because once yes. that happened i saw a lot of the classic and uh quote-unquote legacy bands come back mm-hmm. and decide to reform and put out records and become yep. very active again where you know, the the years we were in the garage hashing it out, they weren't around. Yeah. You know, and, and, we brought so. back our own, we brought back competition for ourselves. It, for it, totally. <laughs> and, totally. And a lot. And, a lot. and just now a few of them are starting to hang it up. Yeah, and, exactly. And, yeah, and brought and brought and brought back brought back dormant bands that would have told you at one point in their career that they weren't a thrash band. Done. 
and you know, sure. and, and the bands that would never hire Ed Repka again because they want some sort of cooler cover. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like we never yeah, hired yeah. Ed Repka. We never yeah. hired him. To be fair, <laughs> yeah, I did. I did in my last band, the band I was in before Warbringer. We hired Ed Repka, but consequently, we got because of the subject matter. That band was a little more Megadeth when it came down to mm-hmm. lyrical content. So it was more sure. political. So our artwork was kind of one of his better ones. Uh, oh, totally. I thought so. You know, I agree. You know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and by the way, yeah. and I don't say that as a diss. I, I love his stuff and, and yeah, the iconography it represents. I mean, more when bands hit that, but yeah, I that know what you mean. moment where they were trying to, like, shed what they saw as, sure. you know, no, no it, it, he got uh, because Ed, Ed Repka was very tied into the classic thrash look. It was, you know, Peace Cells is probably the most famous one, but then a lot mm-hmm. of the the like lower tier thrash we were just discussing Evil would put Dead. out great records. Like Evil Dead is a great yeah. uh, Annihilation Civilization, great record. But his his uh, art has that kind of like comic booky look to it a bit, which seems very eighties, very nostalgic to people. So I think when the what they called the new wave of thrash began around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Everyone was using that for a time because it screams old thrash. You remember mm-hmm. this. You know this. And uh, so that's the challenge for us, though, when when you were talking what we were talking about a minute ago about embracing the label or not. The, ch- the problem is if, if you embrace it too much, then you're just embracing kind of the middle of the road for that genre. And mm-hmm. now that isn't super unique. So mm-hmm. you got a car like it's this tightrope that I think every band walks. And I think a band like us that's specifically trying to play, you know, for us, this isn't like we're trying to revive thrash. We're just like, we just want to play what we consider to be actual metal we'd want to fucking listen to. A lot of stuff coming out today isn't. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Especially, uh, yeah, in the the metalcore era, like you were saying of, you know, okay, here's the screaming verse. Here's the singing chorus. Here's the breakdown. Yeah, exactly. Oh Christ! And it was all—it was all kids like it was all like this emotional whining. You put on Master of Puppets, Disposable Heroes, and he's like, "Bucking of machine gun fire." And I'm like, "What's more badass, dude? I'll take the machine gun fire." You can tell I—I chose the machine gun fire. Look at my goddamn lyrics, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's a—I—I had a like, what's just cool? What's metal? And I was like, there's a kind of gravitas. There's this Roman word, gravitas. This old Roman word that basically means like cred your, your credibility like uh your honor and sort of like your, mm-hmm. your real the weight in what you say like what you say has meaning and importance it has gravitas the metallica records have gravitas gravitas you know mm-hmm. uh in a way that uh lighter quote-unquote feeling records don't you some of the real like heavy emotional sheet get on like one or disposable heroes or dyer's eve for a different angle of the you know or something like that uh it has yeah. more power and weight the outlaw, the outlaw the, torn like, which is a very emotional song hey, but with, but with yeah. depth yeah, and, yeah, and that's, power that's and weight cowboy like has killed it his absolute best thing absolutely you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cowboy Hatfield, call him, you know, his mid mm. his nineties persona. But Outlaw Torn's the best one of those, I think, personally. Oh yeah, and dude, if Outlaw uh, Torn so, yeah. was, was on if Outlaw Torn was on a record that said Corrosion of Conformity or Alice in Chains on the cover, people you know, are down, you know, people mm-hmm. would be you know, all this stoner rock dudes would be like, This is the greatest anthem ever. But you know, because it said Metallica <laughs> on it, they put their nose in the air. With a different logo and a different type of album cover and you flip oh, yeah. it over and they all got short hair and look like yeah. Cuban pimps smoking yes. cigars. It's yeah. like, wait, what there's, band is this? Yeah, there's actually, there's jizz on the cover and it's called Load. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Load. <laughs> yes. yeah. The same one again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but hey, dude, you, you know, so, you know, it's uh, 
we obviously are most influenced and revere the first five, you know, but but it's not like they never wrote a good song otherwise. It's like you got to take it song by song. Oh, those yeah. are like 70 minute albums, you know, they, they're yeah, all yeah, really kind of, there's a lot to digest on those really. And, and I'm, I'm totally open to nineties rock. I love Alice in Chains too. Fucking Me great too. band. And that's the thing is I, is I love, uh, you know, that they were always, you know, the heart of Metallica and what they represent in popular culture and what other bands who followed in their wake, I think aspired to good ones was mm-hmm. authenticity and honesty and this attitude that, we're going to do what we want, how we want our way. And we're happy for anybody who wants to come and meet us there, but you got to come into our house. Yeah. That's, we're, that's we're not, a strong point. We're not going to come to you. you mm-hmm. Yeah. When you deny, you know, making music videos, when you have limited radio yes. play, but you're still selling, you know, you're still, you know, releasing and hitting gold records, mm-hmm. you know, getting on all the major tours and by your third tour, you know, after the fact, you're no longer a support act ever again in your career. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, again, it's just right, right place, right time. But obviously yeah. there was more to it in the, the fact that they had more to offer uh, on top of, you know, just really good business but personal they backing them yeah at the they time. didn't you know, go that's... to the mainstream the mainstream came to them. no never exactly yeah it was just something you couldn't you couldn't hide the band anymore once they made that first music video you just couldn't hide the band anymore but it wasn't uh, uh by no means like a sellout not at that point not at all no and i think even in the 90s uh, dude no a, that, a... that video is so sick <laughs> yeah that's, that's yeah. probably my favorite and it's and it's disruptive because they were like we're going to make a music video but it's going to have movie dialogue in it yeah and it's yeah and it's the antithesis of like every video to point you know everything that's going to give you epilepsy or everything that's like cock rock and just chicks or a big stage with all the the stadium lights you know what i mean it's like well here we are just doom and gloom black and white in a room jamming the song that's you know supposed to you know this guy wants to kill himself it's the the laziest dismissal of the 90s output to to believe that oh they did Lollapalooza, they were trying to be alt rockers mm-hmm. or they're wearing eyeliner they're trying to fit in with this or that that was happening yeah, and it's whatever. like no and slayer started wearing eyeliner. yeah and the first yeah, album and then yeah and then well, got told hey take that shit off because that doesn't fly here in the bay Area. yeah and, and this is this is probably right. uh, this is probably not the not the moment for this tangent but um slayer also made some uh really middling boring new metal-ish records so <laughs> yeah i got this yeah I mean, yeah not- yeah, as much as I, as much as I love Slayer. Yeah, you get great songs here and there, but to, to like quantify records and say, usually in most cases, those core bands were peak, whether it was their youth, their songwriting, whatever. The, you know, the first initial releases are always going to be the best. And, you, you know, you always want to compare, you know, and go, oh, why don't they sound like this anymore? It's because they're not, you know, 24 anymore. Well, and that's what I mean, too, is, is where I was going with that thing, you know, the 90s and something I've said on the podcast before. So listeners are probably already rolling their eyes, but it, it's they were always they were just as true to themselves in the 90s as they were oh, yeah. in the 80s. They were just they were different people, you know, and mm-hmm. it, and it would have been, I think, false and poser ish if in the 90s they were wearing bullet belts and ripped T-shirts because they just sure. that's just not how they felt. You know, and yeah, yeah, and exactly. they eventually did come back around to a lot of those classic elements when they got to a point where they wanted to celebrate that and they embraced it. And, you know, but I think it was a very natural part of the oh, process. Yeah. And I think yeah, even yeah. even things that we may not like, like a art, you know, cover of Blood and Semen or, uh, sure. you know, Lulu, certainly. I, they're at least <laughs> that stuff's provocative, at least. And it's a conversation, which is what art should do. 
And it, and at that point, you yeah, know, at any if, given if, point, if Metallica had dropped a record in the mid '90s with an album cover like "Kill 'Em All," it would be like, okay, this is cool, but we've we've seen this, you know. We're talking a lot. We talked earlier about some of the legacy thrash bands comeback record. And I think actually those bands sometimes, and I'm not going to comment specifically, but I'll say the whole canon of like '80s thrash that is making thrash metal style records again today classic band or, or lesser known band, you name it, there's a real problem with these like post-reunion records, which is when you've rediscovered your roots, how do you progress? Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, does it become so, too so stock? You, does it become you know, too cookie cutter? Or is it just, you know, recycling yourself? That's, that's what I love about, about Hardwired, even as opposed to Death Magnetic, is that Hardwired has that embrace of the classic Metallica, but also has like the, you know, some of the vocal harmonies from the Black yeah, Album. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah, or even load, reload vibe mm-hmm. that sounded a little more grungy, and it's mm-hmm. not, you know, if the, if the whole song sounded like the opening track, which just sounds like motor breath, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> yeah. At, at, the, at the root of it, you know, you got a three-minute song, it's a banger, it's got two riffs straight ahead. If the whole record was like that, then, yeah, there's, where's like you said, where's the progression? But to do that in your 50s, not when you're 18, mm-hmm. like you said, you're celebrating, you know, where, where you come from, but you're still progressing forward and in whatever which way to uh, you you see yourself now respectively as an artist sorry i got i got something here i want i've been mm-hmm. dying to throw in go so yeah, yeah. we're talking about i was just gonna say that i could i could i could i could have you guys go. on every week <laughs> that's uh, what I, that's all i was gonna say we're all so excited to jump in and talk and that's like this is the dream speaking of story <laughs> episode oh, yeah. so, uh, dude, yeah. you, you get you get cruising and i in a room talking about records and this is what's <laughs> gonna sound like anyway you know yeah. like the, the background discussion when we're when we're trying to write some shit anyway and we, we have to quantify what do we like why do we like it yeah what's good about it what yeah. what could be better you know we we as artists have to do that or we're not gonna get anywhere what i've been dying to say here as we're talking about you know the band changing over time whether it's metallica or us or someone else uh that time and place and setting are like key to everything. Yeah, There's yeah, this ancient philosopher called Heraclitus, and he's got this quote, and I, I this usually isn't applied this way, but I say, think about bands when I say this to you. No man steps in the same river twice because it's not the same man and it isn't the same river. Everything changes. You're not the same you that you were even a minute ago. And the mm-hmm. place you're in isn't the same place it was because stuff moves, the air change. You know, you get the point. Mm-hmm. Um, think about that for records and what that really means and what, what the art of a record is. It comes from your soul. It comes from something you can't quite explain. As much as I'm an analytical explainer of things. There's stuff in music I can't explain 10, 15 years in, and that's why I'm still here. That's why I love it. Whatever that unexplainable thing is, trying to, I guess, get it out of me somehow has been Mm -hmm. this wonderful, endless quest. And I'm not the same me that I was. I have the same, I try to keep the same fundamental goal. I try to keep true to the spirit of what I was, but I can't be the same me, and, and nor should I try to be, because then I wouldn't actually be making honest art anymore. I need to be honestly who i am now in order to make honest and valuable art so i think that's uh that's really important when you're thinking about just making art in general whether a musician or any other kind of artist is uh, a sense of your own progression your own time and how you yourself have changed and to be able to like handle that in the context of your art that that itself is a really interesting meta discussion Mm-hmm. I had I had never heard that quote before, and I uh, I feel enlightened. 
Hell yeah. And it's so... Well, yeah. You can use that to defend Metallica in the 90s if you want. Heraclitus, known Amen. as the weeping philosopher. You could use his quote to defend Metallica in the 90s if you wanted. <laughs> I mean, you could, you, could, you could use his quote to, de- to defend George Lucas in the 2000s. Damn. <laughs> There's there like a, That's well, a good now, now, he, now he's rolling in his grave right now. <laughs> Jesus, Jar Jar Binks. Are you kidding? Well, Jar Jar Binks is just really where I was feeling around that time. And, you know, it's, oh, 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 oh. I, ste- I, ste- I, 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 I stepped I step back in the river and I stepped in poop like Jar Jar Binks does. Yeah. What's um, interesting is that even, even when even when you're given the chance to go back and to change things, these guys decided not to do it in such an extreme way that like kind of devalues what they did initially. You know, yes. Uh, yes. And, you know the the peer band being Megadeth when he had a chance to go back and remix and re-record and change the artwork and re-release things, he did what he did. Uh, where Metallica is now, we own, or they own all the uh, masters to their records, so they're remastering them. So they're like mm-hmm. slight little tweaks for the new mediums and the new platforms that they didn't have back then. But ultimately, they kept the integrity when they had the chance to remix yes. Injustice for All and re-release it because they own it. They didn't. Literally, they didn't just touch it. yesterday, just yesterday, I, I was uh, talking to an old friend of mine, um, mm-hmm. Andy Hurley, the drummer for Fall Out Boy. And mm-hmm. we were talking about Injustice for All, as we often do. He's a big Metallica guy also. And, Ooh. yeah, we were both saying how we're so happy that they didn't fuck with it. There were so many fans that yeah. were like, okay, when the when the Justice box set comes out, we're finally going to get the base. We're finally going to bring that in. Yeah, and yeah. No? even Newstead, who is who, if anyone on earth has yeah, the right fight. put up a fight to for put it, up yeah. a fight for it, yeah, has said, no, like, it is what it is. It's a time and a place. It's a snapshot of a moment. It's we've all heard it that way for decades. That's the record, mm-hmm. you know, and that and that's part of the record story. Even is the the disappearing base, and sure. you know, with all the arguments of like, yeah, because there's a personal know. thing behind that. It's not just that they decided fuck the bass guitar. They they were talking dealing with the death of the guy who used to play the bass guitar. And yeah, and that's there and, the thing and, that, like and led to have, that emotional context. Yeah, and you have James and Lars going in and, and turning themselves up over each other. Over, <laughs> you know, it's like it's you know the the person with the uh, least amount of of power to have a voice in that particular moment is not mm-hmm. going to win the argument of like, hey, what about me? And then there's also yeah. you know, and you guys as as uh, experienced musicians would probably know more about this than me, but I've also encountered in, in more recent years, you know, now that there's YouTube and people can sit around and pontificate on stuff, that there are sonic reasons why the bass can't exist on Injustice for All. Yeah, you couldn't, yeah, yeah. You couldn't it's, it's just the, add bass. Yeah, it's to the it. it's the it's the space you yeah, know in stereo whatever, where, the, yeah. where the bass should live that's eaten up by the kick drum and the way that sounds and the low end of the guitars and the way they sound on that record. Yeah, because those guitars uh, are very like I mean I woofy at times when he yes. goes low chunk chunk and they chunk like a motherfucker. But yeah, it eats up a space. Now I've seen plenty of but we're talking to YouTube and, and this medium now where people you know, are releasing Injustice for Jason right. and mixing in the bass. And I've been able to hear those versions. And I, I, I do like them because they I do add too. a little more to the music. But some, like, of them are also, but some of them are also, to me, are, are overcompensating where it's like, okay, now it's sure. Now it's like, what if Flea was in Metallica? Right. <laughs> yeah, know, no, like, I know what you mean. Yeah, here's the, here's, here's the bass you know. version of Injustice for All. It sounds like Seinfeld. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, the, the, be- the beauty of it is that, you know, uh, you get, you know, the live shit. 
Yes, and DVDs, that's and that's why I think and it then shines. You hear, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Whether it's the Dresses era or Into the Black album era, where you hear that band live or play oh. old songs live. Hey, I, I, even, I will argue even the first three that they were even at, the bass. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say go ahead. All I was getting at is just even the bass guitar <laughs> on the first three records. You know what I mean? Have their time and place where it does yes. cut through, where it doesn't. You know, it yes. it wasn't uh, as yeah. detrimental as as what we hear on Justice, but. Uh, time and place time and place for sure yeah like lightning's still a guitar focused record you know it's, mm -hmm. it's uh you know burton's burton is still is he's playing a, he's playing a supporting role to hetfield's right hand you know because that's the mm -hmm. center stage of metallica that's that's yeah. their sound that that's the thing that made them such a new musical force is basically mm -hmm. i love that you said that you know they were the first yeah. to really I, I, get I haven't that. done uh i haven't done merch for the podcast but my Ooh. idea it's funny you're the first first guys i've even said this out loud to my idea yeah. for the first speak and destroy t-shirt is it's going to say the right hand of Hetfield, and it's just going to be a, a drawing, Sick. a drawing of his hand. Oh yeah, that's the right hand of God. Just right holding there. a pick, you know, holding a pick and doing a downstroke. Definitely yes. make sure it's not in the middle of an upstroke because that would yeah. be heresy. <laughs> uh, so downstroke, no, no, dude. Early days, Warbringer. We used to do like uh, before Carlos was even in the band because Carlos, like, it was a guy I knew for a few years who was a local musician. He was playing at Hex, and he played in a group mm -hmm. called In Mystery that he had before. He, he came up to me at shows for a long time before we uh, we asked him to join the group. Uh, so it was kind of a real natural thing in that way. But, uh, fuck, I remember um, in early days Warbringer, stuff like the middle break and combat shock and stuff, which is like pretty on the high end for what you can downpick. You know? mm -hmm. we, we made this rule that if you can downpick it, you must. And there's a lot of stuff in Warbringer you absolutely cannot downpick. It's, you know, the Buzzsaw 16th. But, uh, you know, the ch -ch 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 -ch, even at that kind of tempo, we want all downpick. And, and for the same reasons that, uh, you know, Metallica wanted it, that consistency of sound and that just really uniform that, that sound, that sonic character mm -hmm. uh, doesn't just come from the amps, from the tone. It comes from, from sweating it out, from that, you know, yeah. and... From yeah, the, the hand, the player, the, it all, it all from the technique, to, from the yeah. player, yeah. Yeah, you got all these so guys. So that's these something days, really important to us. Yeah, fully, absolutely. Uh, again, again, that right hand, it, that has so much to do with it. You know, my hand sounds different from, you know, our guitar player Adam's hand, from our guitar player Trace Becker's hand. Uh, the, the way anybody in line with, you know, that early thrash scene would have, you know, heard Ride the Lightning for the first time and, it's still 1985, but it's like, oh, I'm trying to chug, and I got the same gear as mm -hmm. maybe Hetfield does, but my record sounds nothing alike. His, <laughs> why is that? Yeah, it, it's just not gonna happen. But you yeah. know, you could you could emulate it now to the T, thanks to the technology and you know all the digital uh, mediums that we have for equipment and you know Metallica presets and etc. But it's never gonna be the same. I have a, a very good, very good friend of mine, uh, Lindsey Carmichael, who's a tattooist and uh, tattooer, whatever the nomenclature is, and um, <laughs> he uh, and he's not a huge Metallica fan. You know, he, li he likes the mm -hmm. band or whatever, but um, he sure. is a he is a big music dude. He tattooed Riff Life on Hetfield's knuckles, Sick. and That's you know, cool. drew up the lettering and everything. And uh, and <laughs> this is the degree of Metallica nerd that I am in doing this podast. Is I'm going to have mm -hmm. Lindsey on as a guest. <laughs> and tell the story Talk of Hetfield. Yeah. And, by, and by the way, Hetfield walked Damn. in off off the street. Whoa, that's even fucking sweeter. Lindsay is uh, based in Orange County mm -hmm. and was doing a guest spot at a shop in San Francisco. 
and Lindsay's a pretty well-known guy and it was a well-known shop. So it's not like, you know, cool. Hetfield was just, you know, doing a walk-in. Yeah, yeah. At, Passerby, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but he, but it was a, a walk-in in that sense. And he came in and, um, Lindsay ended up being the guy and, you know, drew it out for him and Hetfield was into it and then they did it. And, um, and it's so funny because I was, you know, one of the first people to get the the text of the photo of the two of them together for obvious reasons, wow. and uh, and yeah, and and the and the irony there too is that he's not even like a big Metallica guy, so it's like ah, <laughs> you know, yeah, right, hey, to each their own. He got an opportunity, <laughs> and uh, everybody everybody won. Oh hell yeah, hell yeah. everybody hell elevated yeah. together. That's a really cool experience and, 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 and for and sure. Already so already a person who I really love, and it's just another uh, bonus Red. bonus fact about mm-hmm. Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've been able to play with the with I think at one particular point or another, whether it was a festival or directly or whatever. The majority of these bands that came from that same scene, but I don't, we've never played with Metallica on any circumstance, or I don't think I've ever met them. I've seen them five times, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one being, which I didn't mention at the beginning of the episode, the first big concert I ever went to, besides my, you know, family stuff or local cousin stuff or backyards or whatever, was uh, Metallica March fifth, two thousand four, at the Forum. So it was St. Anger Tour, and they played two tracks off of that, and the rest of it was old school. It was actually the first show where they closed the whole show with Dyer's Eve, and that was the first time the band had ever played it live. So gnarly. So that that was my first and, and, and I, and, experience. And for, and for you as a drummer, I mean, this is – God. I, I'm not kidding when man. I say I, I – I, at the very least, have to have you guys both back mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. I haven't had any repeat guests Ooh. yet. But as a drummer, right, I, one of the things that I loved – I'm not a drummer, but I mean, one of the things that I loved about them doing Dyer's Eve in 2004 was it was at a point where there were fans that said Lars couldn't play it. I mean, that was literally sure. just that was a thing that you heard. And so yeah, big time. I thought yeah. it was so I, mean, ba- even, I thought, I thought even, it was so uh, badass for him to come out and be like, oh, you want to hear Dyer's Eve? Here you sure. go. 2004. Yeah, yeah. At, at that point, I, I know, you know, they were doing uh, different um, arrangements for certain songs that were longer. You know, when you put out new records, you like to promote new stuff. But mm-hmm. ultimately, everybody who's a fan wants to hear the classics. Any band, any any show, any concert, any artist, you know, if you have your core and prime time, that's what everybody usually wants to hear. Uh, luckily, it doesn't seem to be the case these days when those types of bands put out quality new records. But um, no, no. I mean, you, you hear a big difference, and ultimately, a lot of people slack him for it. I think he was a better songwriter than any any other drummer out of the thrash scene. I think mm-hmm. he was a better arranger. Uh, all, 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 yeah, yeah, arranger for sure. Definitely businessman in every sense of the word. Writing uh, writing any, solos any... with Kirk, sitting in the studio with Kirk, sure, like, exactly. humming, humming as, notes as a, to him. Yeah, as, as a producer, etc. So there were a mm-hmm. lot. There was a lot more to that guy than just drumming. If you spent all this time drumming, you probably would have been a better drummer, but. You know, he had, he had to spread himself thin and do so much more for that band. Consequently, that band is where they are. You know, but you can you can put him up against obviously the other drummers in the big four, and he's probably the less technically proficient. But it was one of those things that over the last summer I played with a band called Power Trip, mm-hmm. and I was their fill-in drummer. And that band is by no means technically capable of doing what a band like Warbringer can do, as whether it's the vocals, whether it's the lead guitar playing, the bass playing, etc. But that band being what it is, it's like them as a unit create something substantial. Metallica was kind yeah. of in that same boat. You take Megadeth, yes. and you separate them as players. Megadeth, all-star players, bass, guitars, you know, and, lead and, guitar, and drum. Has said that. He said that even during yeah. the initial Big Four run mm-hmm. in Europe. I, you know, I saw an interview with him where he said, like, you know, the Slayer's, you know, pissed off and evil and 
yeah. Anthrax can do a little bit more of the goofy kind of fun loving sure, stuff. Like, yeah, that good and, time. And then he said like Meg- Megadeth is just like state of the art technical. Yeah, you know, like, like even I'm like, I'm like a jazz say that you know it's mm-hmm. yeah totally. Um, but then you, you bring in the four players of Metallica and, and collectively they create that power, the, those songs, you know what I mean? And that the not having, you know, all the capability in the world technically as a, a player, as a musician, granted them, you know, the ability to write those types of songs. Yes, you know, they, they couldn't pull off a, a Megadeth song because they, you know, they don't choose to write songs in that fashion because they're not that, you know, even the, the Phantom Lords of the worlds or the, the metal militias of the worlds, so, you know, there, there's a very certain riff style mm-hmm. because of Mustaine, you know, ultimately. And that's not the way Metallica chose to like progress in the riff style, even on lightning puppets, etc. And there's a thing where with the drumming that I always point out where, and, and I, and, you know, love your take as a drummer as well. Mm-hmm. So if you think about a classic metal song, like pick, you know, pick a song or, or let alone a rock song, if there's mm-hmm. a cover band or a bar band or anybody, you know, doing a rendition of that, mm-hmm. you've got to nail the vocals, the hooks, the chorus. There's a guitar solo. You better play that right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah got, exactly. But as a drummer, you really just have to have the tempos and you can kind of do your own fills and whatever. Mm-hmm. If it's depending on how much of a stickler you can be, like right. usually when you when when I learned those first five Metallica records. Well, that's where that's where I'm go- that's, that, that's where I'm going is that yeah, yeah. I think with lombardo era slayer and any metallica you gotta you gotta do every fill you know mm-hmm. what i mean it's like it you yeah can't, yeah i know what you mean it's essential to the song it's like a lot of cover sad but true it's as important you yeah, can't cover sad important. but true without those drums yeah right without, yeah 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 you can't do the fill like some other way yeah that wouldn't work or, or i was gonna say the same thing like Usually for drums, I think usually for the most part, if you're keeping the beat right, if you change the accents right. a bit, that won't matter so much. But then there's things like, for instance, if you see someone play "Painkiller" by Judas Priest, you know how that intro goes. <laughs> they better nail it, you know. Well, fully, yeah. Um, yeah. And most, like that. So I, I exactly. And I think with moments, moments, yeah. You got to hit the moment. Let's say we're talking yeah. Dyer's Eve, right? Because that's the song we were talking about a couple minutes ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, all, all those like snare and chug things. So they're just all over, especially and justice for all those like syncopated snare and yeah. chug rolls. Mm-hmm, like fully. you can't play them another way because they're just sticky to the to the chug. Yes. Or it's like so, you know, it's, so, it's a core you know, piece of that song and the song's composition. It's like if you play it another way, it's no longer that song anymore. Yes. 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 Yeah. What are you gonna do? Do the yeah, snare he's... the snare rolls on the cymbals or something? <laughs> like fuck, you couldn't really change mm-hmm. the rhythm much without breaking the syncopation because that's the whole point you know is that the drums and the mm-hmm. rhythm stick together and that's all over that record you know yeah and i think sure. that's a that's yet another uh solid argument for why he gets such a large share of the publishing because it's you know it is it's the arranging i think mm-hmm. number, number one you know the arranging yeah. and getting in the room with headfield and and getting the stuff to come out and be presentable yeah change it I but mean, yeah exactly but, the, but his yeah, drum stuff this... i think no I, I don't think every drum and no disrespect but i don't think every drummer really qualifies as a songwriter when it's sure. like when it's the riff and it's the vocal and then the drummer's kind of just you know doing the tempo and then adding their flavor that's not necessarily songwriting not in the way that what the, what, what the drums in it's not the way we've Metallica been talking about it yes, yes exactly. yeah now, now mm-hmm. i gotta say on, on for my man carlos cruz here who you know you this guy is a songwriter you know so yeah we we work together on this stuff and a lot of what are ends mm-hmm. up being our songs 
I get a fully fleshed out demo from him. You know, sometimes he's oh, willing to work I, I would, from I would, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made lyrics. that point. I wouldn't have made that point if I hadn't figured that out already. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. but I, I just mm. wanted to say, like, and I wonder, I wonder, you know, because Metallica's Carlos's favorite band, so I wonder how much uh, that kind of model of a band role plays mm-hmm. into his thing. is something i've never asked my guy carlos here yeah. uh, how much is that no, it like does. multi because you yeah, see lars does, is like this multi-role guy and you you do that so much in our group you know i'm i'm the face the pr the conceptual the lyricist i do all my mm-hmm. roles and you do a lot of the you know you're you're like a lead songwriter you know a lot of what i'm doing for this last couple of records is writing lyrics to ideas you showed them that we then developed together so mm-hmm. it's like uh yeah i wonder if how much the model of lars ulrich as uh that the drummer can be the Lennon McCartney figure, if you will, you know, the guy who's the, the brains behind the songwriting, uh, that mm-hmm. that's even a role open for drummers in metal. That, that itself isn't the thing people usually think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought of it as a, you know, your involvement is a choice and obviously some people have their strengths and weaknesses. So you use them to your benefit and obviously it's a team effort when it comes into it. So that, that being kind of modeled over the course of time where, you know, where Metallica was the initial spark that led me into doing things a hell of a lot more seriously. Then, you know, the the people involved become, you know, personal influence. You know, there's a reason, you know, I take these elements from the Hetfields of the worlds, you know, and, and characters like him and other individuals like him. Uh, and then, you know, you have your Cliff Burtons of the world who can be, you know, have such an eclectic taste in music and have such mm-hmm. a musical range from playing, you know, various instruments to wanting to compose a certain way and wanting to add this flavor um, of classical this or whatever arrangement to the motorhead, you know, and then you have Lars doing everything he he does, whether, like I said earlier, whether it's from, you know, a musical standpoint, you know, the technical capability of his drumming, you see advance, obviously, from record one to record five. Uh, but he always served the song, so I never faulted him for anything like that because he did so much more. Uh, you know, if, if he didn't have all these components, you wouldn't have the band you have. You, you, we know today. By the way, that's one that's one of my favorite phrases to hear from a drummer or a bass player is "serve the song," because I think that's something. That oh, gets, big time! That yeah, lost, absolutely. You know? you know, I mean, yeah, it's he- heavy metal, and heavy metal is guitar-oriented music. It's all about the riff, and we all know that thanks to Tony Iommi. But, you know, and but ultimately just from band to band, everybody has their team and how that team mm-hmm. functions and everybody has their role, uh, whether that's, you know, chosen or whether it's just kind of assigned, you know, if you're in a band like Megadeth or something. <laughs> right. uh, but 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 it, it does change from from band to band. But because Metallica is, you know, I champion them just because they did change my life in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take a lot from that, you know, so like what Keeble was saying. And so he, he does what he does. And he has his strengths in our band, and I do what I'm able to do. Uh, and I do thank uh, Lars and, and the group as a whole from watching and obsessing over all the interviews. And whether it was in, you know, thankfully for YouTube, you can do that. You can do deep dives. Of, mm-hmm. You know, what were they doing at this time? What were they listening to at this time? Who were they as people? You know, you, you, you get all the box sets and stuff, and you get all the extra stuff that hasn't seen the light of day. Oh, well, you know, Cliff was doing interviews uh you know for master of puppets promo stuff that nobody's mm-hmm. ever seen or heard or whatever and you get to learn a little bit more about him 
uh, and the musical tastes and et cetera, et cetera. So you, fi- you they're, find they're, out that he likes Simon and Garfunkel. Exactly. <laughs> you know, back stuff then. like that. You know, I so, like Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing yeah. wrong with that. <laughs> Great songs, you know. You know yeah. But back then, you know, to the the everyday whatever, uh, to one of Cliff's peers at the time, like a Paul Bailoff, probably oh, would have been the case. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> you see what I mean? Like, he would have been like, what are you doing listening to stuff like Simon that? Simon and Garfunkel, like, well, what the fuck? Yeah, well, you hear the difference between a record like Bonded by Blood and you know, what became, you know, I mean, sure, Barnabas was closely related to uh, stylistically Kill Em All, but you see the advancement of, okay, they went Ride the Lightning and they went Pleasures of the Flesh. So you see, you, you get what I'm getting at, you know That's, what I mean? Yeah, like, I know. The, the two, kind of epic sense of things is something that they went with and the classical uh, thing, you know, with the Cthulhu's and, and songs like that. And it's just, it comes Which off they wouldn't as have a, had with it a, has a, a different component ambition. like Kirk or Cliff. Yeah, exactly. But so the people yeah. attribute to that. You know, Warbringer can do what Warbringer does now at the level of our new record because of the technical ability we have of our newest guitar lead guitar player and our newest, you know, addition to the band being our bass player and this this the sense of riffs that I like to write versus the style of riffs that our guitarist Adam likes to write. You know, so yeah. it, it all it all plays a role. You know, we couldn't have done the first record with this lineup and have it be the same thing. Oh yeah. And check this out too. Um, just one thing I'm thinking too when we're talking about like you know how do we as musicians model our roles in our own band, right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because just the fact that such a well because Metallica is so big basically because they've been this institution for so long. There's such a wealth of material that exists on them. You yeah. can't really like if you want to chart the career of like I don't know. You were saying we revere the Bathory records a lot. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you nearly as much about how each of those were made because it's just yeah, not it's on the same commercial scale. The there wasn't like yeah. a documentary of it made and the guy's dead. So, yeah. you yeah, know, yeah. rest in peace. But uh, it's like with Metallica, you can tell there, there's hours of interviews of where they were in like mm-hmm. 81 or Ron McGovney, you know, you'll see him at shows in L.A. He's a really nice guy. You can talk to him. You can ask Mm -hmm. him, you know, and then there's uh, then you see where they were in in like pre kill all days with the tape trading and all that. Then you see how they moved to San Francisco. You see how uh, they start to grow their records. They moved into you can see the first rehearsal with Mustaine and and Cliff in the same room Mm -hmm. together. Yeah, Yeah. Like you said, that wealth of information is so very well documented and what a gift. Uh, e- even yeah. yeah exactly but even bands of the time don't necessarily have that quality content uh and you can't really go about and you, you like you said with a band like Bathory, you got to do some deep dive in and i do that myself you know i've, I've got to go after because i want to find out the information but it's just not there and, that, and, that's, yeah. and that's part of the you know in a in a fun fan way uh, that's also part of the appeal of something like Bathory is that it's obscure and mysterious and mm-hmm. yeah. indefinable. And then and part of the appeal of something yeah. like Metallica is that it is accessible and you can look behind the curtain and they're always yeah. being really true. No, there's, yeah. there's those bands, you know, the Beatles are a, a bit over-explained. Zeppelin is over-explained. The Metallica can be over-explained. But, I mean, obviously those are substantial acts that molded rock music, yeah. you know, in, in every way possible. So luckily you can find and we have that wealth of information. Well, and as a dude in a band, too, you can look at this wealth of information and you can kind of see it gives you more, you know, because you know the records. That's that's your starting point, I hope. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's why yeah, we're cool. all here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so beyond that, though, you get to see knowing 
seeing already the changes that happen in the music, you can see the personal stuff behind it, you know, like the, the stuff around justice we were talking about. You can see how it works, and you can see their personal dynamic. Now, they're, they're not, you know, I'm not James Hetfield or Lars Ulrich, but I can see how these guys work as a unit, mm-hmm. and I can learn from it, and I can apply that knowledge to myself and how I work with my band as a unit. Just the fact that sure. they're there, they're like an existing case study. And yes. because yes, they totally. have this wealth Absolutely. of material, you can use them in that way, in a way you couldn't use other bands, even great bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because of their success, because of their visibility, you can really look at not not just the records, but the dynamic within the bands, and you can kind of study that, which if you're trying to be in a band yourself, is a useful thing to look at. Mm-hmm. To learn from, oh, they did this, and it, and it worked. They did that, and Absolutely. it sure as hell didn't. So, you know, learn learn from those who have already experienced it and gone through yeah. it. and. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's cool because it kind of plays a part to a bigger picture of the record. Like, we go back to Justice and talk about, oh, why isn't the bass there? And, well, what was happening? We can mm-hmm. go in and find out. Mm-hmm. And we have and, the information and, and, even, of, oh, even finding Monsters stuff Rock out, Tour. Like, oh. like how they were, uh, yeah, how the record was mixed and they were traveling and they were yeah, burnt exactly. out. And what, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Flying to and from the festival tour to New York, back and forth. Mm-hmm. And this guy flew out, did his tracks, and never heard it again until it was released. And ex- whatever it be, we can have we have that information. It's really cool. That was the first uh, time. Yeah, because we're in this world. We can relate to that. First time. Yeah, yeah exactly. As musicians. Yeah. 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 But I seek, out, I seek out that information just as a fan. You know, you become a little obsessed with whatever it is your kick is at the time. And now that's kind of what I, I mean. We know the Metallica record. So now I personally just do, like we were talking, just the deep dives because they're releasing, you know, these box sets with this extra content that hasn't seen the light of day. So you get so much more information. And I think it's cool. To, just mm-hmm. to learn the story, you know, within that, because I think up until Black Album, there is no making of or studio footage. You know, there's plenty of photos, thankfully, and there's these cool coffee table books and memoirs and etc. But yeah, the the documentation of it is pretty cool, we, and and it's the first time that you know we do it for our band having this like new uh, documentary that we will be putting out pretty soon that oh, goes sick. through. You know, the writing of the record, the recording of the record, where our minds were, you know, that deep dive that we go after as fans, like we're giving that option to our fans. So that's, you know, it's something relatable, luckily, with the technology we have to just film it all, you know, and store it all, catalog it all in and release it when we feel like it. So I am not kidding when I say that I 100 percent want to have both of you back. Yeah, let's do it. This is, this fun. is super Shall we fun. rank them? Should we end it with a, with a ranking of, for preference for fun? Hell yeah. First five, John. Uh, first five Metallica records. How do you rank them? Okay. Well, I, I know. Uh, so I fluctuate. And you've we've had this discussion, oh, yeah, Carl. We've had it more than yeah. a few times, I think. So, so I fluctuate between Puppets and Justice is my one. And Justice is one is one where you're like, ooh, I can't go there with you, you know. So I know that's our fundamental disagreement is I rate Sorry. Justice higher than you do. That's totally uh, fine. Yeah. I would go probably. Yeah. So yeah. I, I rate uh, – I'll do it. I'll say – tie between puppets and justice i think both of those get to like the epic scope of their songwriting in the best way uh i really like that i fucking you know the intro for battery that's the best opening track they ever wrote uh one of the best ever generally that fucking intro is legend to live is to die has probably my favorite like most emotional like movement and music they ever wrote and i really like uh you know i fucking love black and i love dyer's eve uh it's just a great record shortest shortest straws underrated (laughs) so you'll rank so for this We'll rank for Justice, you Justice puppets. 1 and Puppets, puppets 2. 2. Cool. Then we'll go Lightning, Kill Em All, Black Album. That's got 
that's got to be my rating, I guess. And, and the Black Album's still a fucking hell of a strong record, too. So this is, we're, we're grading between like an A plus and an A minus. <laughs> no, it, it is. Here, you know? yeah, if I, number one is like my, we're talking music in general, and the, the first spot for a record, this is the first five. Like, I, how do you choose? But for the sake of it, we'll choose. So I would go uh, Puppets, because it was just the spark. But to me, ultimately, Puppets and Lightning are, are right there. So I'd go Puppets, Lightning, Kill them all because the Cliff era, for me, was like my introduction and really shaped me. Um, Justice came after the fact, so by no means is it, you know, all of these get an A in my book, but I would go the Cliff era, Puppets, in reverse, Puppets, Lightning, Kill them all, then Justice and Black Album, even though depending on my mood, I can put them all on at any given time and they're all killer. So but both of us put Black Album last, and I think that just speaks to the fact that we're extreme thrash metal musicians in the Black Album. Yeah. It would be disappointing if two of the guys from Warbringer <laughs> didn't put the Black Album last. <laughs> It'd be weird. I mean... It, but I mean, I, well, I love the sonics I mean, of it. I learned so much from it. The quality of the songwriting to go, okay, I can take, you know, two riffs and make a fucking great song out of this. I mean, we 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 tried that on our last two records and taken, you know, a, a core riff like a Sandman and made that the whole song. We've executed that and had great success doing it for our, ourselves, <laughs> yeah. the songwriters. Remain violent. Remain By no means do we knock the Black Album. The show, we're just talking like what it did for us. I right. Think, and, know, and, and, and it's relative to those. Other, I mean, it's, you know, the other yeah. day I, I, I texted a, a link to a comedian that I like to a friend and my friend wrote back and mm. was like, I don't know. I don't know, man. Like, is this guy as good as Dave Chappelle? And I was like, dude. Oh, I see. I was like, it's like I just texted you hate breed and you said, is this as good as Slayer? Like that. Not even in the that's same not even, Yeah. Like, like why is that yeah, a question? Same score. Like, differently. Just watch different, it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is interesting because first of all, my, my ranking has changed um, over the years. As it, it would. Does, yeah. Which is, sure. which is what's fun. And I love hearing you guys kind of struggle with it. And I also love hearing both of yours because Yours are both very different from one another, and I think mine is going to be different from both of yours, too. Cool. Yeah. Mine goes Ride the Lightning, number one. Awesome. And And that's because Creeping Death and For Whom Ooh, the Bell yeah. Tolls and, you know, those those songs are such Monsters. staples. And it's like, you know, oh, Inter, yeah. Inner Sandman's a staple, Seek and Destroy's a staple, but I could eh. see I could see Metallica. I'd, I'd take Creeping Death over both of those songs. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I could see Metallica Absolutely. and be fine okay. not, not to hear those songs, you know, whereas... Right. If I went to a Metallica show and they didn't play Creeping Death, or uh, you'd be like, like what the bells fuck? Holes, yeah, I'd be like, or bells, yeah. And then, and then you, and then you have, you know, you have Fight Fire with Fire, you have Monster. Cthulhu. So you, so you also get, you know, if it's a Desert Island record, you get a pretty robust oh, yeah. experience. Um, and then yeah, yeah so I, I go, a dynamic. I go Ride the Lightning and then Puppets. Cool. And the only thing that changes for me over the years is those two swap places sometimes. Sure. Yeah, you have your moments, your moods, yeah. Yes. I really like the way the snare drum sounds, but wait, I love the way that this record goes chug, 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 way tighter. And there's less reverb, and oh, I love yeah. the reverb. Oh, I yeah. like, yeah. Exactly. I totally <laughs> yeah. I go Ride Puppets, Justice, Black Album, Kill Em All. I think, I think you could make the argument Black Album has better songwriting than Kill Em All. I think you can make a pretty strong argument there. Mm -hmm. uh, Kill Em All has more raw, reckless energy, so it's just what do you want. Yes, exactly. And I think, and I mm -hmm. think Kill Em All is... See, I like the Dave Mustaine Metallica. Oh, yeah, I like me too. listening to No Life uh, I, I put Kill em All over Black Album, you know? So. Yeah, oh, no, fully, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm, yeah, yeah. It's just like a different at this point. No, and, yeah, and, again, yeah. and again, it's it's such splitting hairs, right? Because I put Kill em All over 
um i don't know music <laughs> you know what i mean it's like <laughs> like like it's still yeah we're talking about you know five of the greatest records of all time mm. trying to like organize them but for me the the, I, the black album is it's that it has um a bit more depth and diversity whereas yeah kill em all is very much a uh, a certain type of attack which yeah. is I, I mean you know Rain and Blood is like probably mm -hmm. the perfect thrash metal record. Thrash metal record, time. yeah, it's hard to top that um, one. But yeah, and, and it's, shove it's in. yeah. When I had it on cassette, it would the entire album was repeated on both sides because it's so short. Oh, uh, badass! Um, That's cool that they did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Side one and side two were just the whole album uh, twice. Sick. And, uh, That's awesome. and, I used, and I used to have my <laughs> my boombox on uh, auto flip so it's just the cool. you know, rain and blood and we just, just start over, 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 <laughs> over. yeah you, you you go from uh from the fucking like you know outro noises back just right back into yes. angel of death <laughs> so if That's i want sick. that it's perfect for that but then if yeah. i want to get like a slayer listening experience i'm gonna put on mm -hmm. south of heaven because sure. it has a little more dynamics and some more mm -hmm. moods and shades while still being you know slayer at their at their peak in terms of mm -hmm. performance and songwriting. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm also, I, I mean, I would, uh, delete every episode of the podcast if I didn't let a Mustaine mention go by without saying, uh, Megadeth is the band that got me into metal. Cool. Peace, Peace Cells was the first metal record I ever loved. Um, yes. it was via Megadeth that I discovered Metallica and then via Metallica mm. that I discovered Sam Hain and Misfits. And... That's cool that you went the opposite way. Yeah. So I, I, I do, had, it, do I, it in verse. Yeah, I had good. that, you know, still one of my favorite bands of all time. And, and oh, one yeah. of, one of the greatest joys of my life has been getting to know the Daves, um, over the last couple of decades cool. and, uh, Ellison That's in particular badass. is, you know, a, a close pal and, um, and Mustaine is, you know, See, and by the way, this is the this is the ultimate name drop and and brag or whatever. And but where else am I going to make this brag? But on my mm -hmm. Metallica podcast, on your own podcast. When, yeah. I, when I exactly when I see when I my see, podcast, my rule. When I see Dave Mustaine in my inbox, or I get a text nice. from David Ellison, it's never. It doesn't matter how many times I meet those guys or talk to those guys or what situations we're in. It's never not. I'm always 14 for at least a second. Yeah. You know, I know what you mean. I'm always uh, just yeah. like, holy yeah. shit. A little, fun, you know? little fun fact. There's two fun facts, actually. Um, I was born the day Rust in Peace came out. Wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Dude, you never told me that one. We talk about yeah. Rust in Peace all the fucking time. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, that, so, that, so, little, so that means it's about to be, uh, you know, for sure. Yeah. So it's about to be well, yeah, your, see, your 30th anniversary was, soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this year. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm getting old. Um, but I... Uh, from that, which I found was a really cool synchronicity just because of the fact that uh, through mutual friends, uh, Chris Poland and Nick Menza were playing in their jazz band together yeah. and Nick Menza passed away. But yeah. I have since then stepped in to play with Chris Poland what? in that band. So I'm also <laughs> Chris Poland's drummer. Well, this, from, this is me being a bad journalist because I, I, I missed that in my Oh, no, don't you works. worry about that. I mean, yeah, it's a, not necessarily like on blast. I mean, we keep it to local. But now Chris Poland's doing new music and he's going to be playing shows with David Ellison and yeah. they're doing that thing again. But I, I know what you mean. Every time I walk into the room, you know, and Chris Poland has Peace Sells gold and platinum records on the wall. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how the fuck did I get here? I have when I when I you know, and I, why I, am I here? And why uh, am I in my own dream when I was 15? You know, <laughs> what pretty happened? much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah when, when so that, I, uh, I see, I grew up in Indiana and I moved to California in 2001. And when I was first out here the first couple of years, um, some friends of mine, uh, their band, 
uh, rented a rehearsal space that was run by Chris Poland. Yeah, and, that's why um, he still owns that spot. Yeah, it might be not the same. It might not be the same building, but yeah, he's, he still manages those those lockouts, yeah. and, and that's where and, I go. And and I, 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 so one of the recent Warhammer photo shoots is on top of that building. We're all there. He let because Poland's there, letting us use the, like letting us up to the roof so we could take pictures. Rad. <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah. I, have a, I have a great memory of a, of a good friend of mine um, showing me. Uh, she had a letter from from Chris Poland, uh, you know, complaining that they were a couple days late on their rent. <laughs> and um, and it was just you know we're both huge Megadeth fans. It was one of the first things we bonded over. And she's like, "Let me show you something." I'm like, "What the fuck is this?" But yeah, we yeah, practice bowling, hounding you for the rent, yeah. man. <laughs> he, run, he runs our practice pad. I'm like, "What?" Yeah, so killer. So yeah, rent, rent rent sells, but who's buying? Man? Rent sells, but who's <laughs> paying? You are motherfucker. Pay me. Yeah. <laughs> I as a kid, right? I understood that Dave Mustaine was a founding member of Metallica and that he had mm. songwriting credits and you would see his name in the liner notes um, oh, yeah. and ride the lightning. What I didn't understand as a kid and hadn't been in bands yet myself and, you know, all the things you learned later. And like we were saying, how, how much research and study you can do now on Metallica. I didn't understand how significant his contributions were. And as sure. I began to understand that more as an adult, so much more about the 80s and early 90s made sense you know because it's mm -hmm. like you know watching if you go on youtube and watch the anniversary shows the 30th anniversary shows and of course the mm -hmm. amazing moment when dave joins the guys on stage yeah lars in introducing jump in the fire says when dave came into the band he brought this song from his old band panic called jump in the fire oh, yeah. and it's like such a light bulb moment where you're like oh okay that's not a riff like that you know mechanics jump in the fire like those yeah were like, those phantom were, lord metamolition yeah, those are songs call of cthulhu red lightning yeah, call of cthulhu that's, a, that's another big big one and and mustaine is yeah. gracious enough that he says you know he thinks that what they added to cthulhu for example improved it mm -hmm. but yeah that that, cool. that when hell freezes over demo is yeah demo yeah it's the song like it's you know he wrote the song. And so mm -hmm. understanding that more as an adult, it's like, yeah, I, I get all sides of the argument. It's like, given the, the span of the band's career and all respect to the mighty legend that is Kirk Hammett, he was in the band for a relatively short, short period of time. Sure. But it was so but pivotal. Impact, and that style but of guitar he's, playing. He's, yeah, it just. He's uh, young. He's, he's part, yeah, he's part of inventing a new genre of music. Exactly. Yeah, fully. You know, That's exactly what I was going to say. That guy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I was just going to say, without Mustaine and his riffage and his. Like, pretty much, you put him in a band with the guys in Metallica at that time, him stand alone, he is the best musician in that band. Mm, yeah, you know what I mean? And, 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 and none of them would argue with that. And took role as the front yeah. man when James was still shy and mm -hmm. getting used to it, and Dave was outspoken and shredding, like out shredding anybody in Exodus or Slayer or yeah. whatever, you know, uh, even, in the, even in the demo phase. When I've so, had some yeah. of the guys on the podcast from that third or fourth wave or whatever you want to call it of Thrash, mm -hmm. like the, the Bay Area guys who saw Metallica at Ruthie's Inn, but were in high school yeah. themselves. You know, Alex Skolnick, Rob Flynn, like those guys, were, mm -hmm. you know, those guys tell me when Mustaine was fired, they were like, what? Like, that's the main guy. Mm -hmm. You know, they kicked out the main I guy. He, he, write, he writes all the songs. He's the shredder. He does all the talking, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah, understand very, very different how crazy Inside story, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's another good documentary that's about to drop the same day as our record is that Murder in the Front Row. 
mm-hmm. documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. I mean, seen you it. have the coffee seen table it. book, seen I'm it. sure. Seen it twice and had Adam Dubin on oh, the sorry. podcast. <laughs> Badass. You're, yes. you're already ahead of the game, yeah. Oh, yeah but I, I pre-ordered it. that Bad Bad Majama, so excited for that one. Yeah. Yeah. And here's another, since we're talking about the interrelation, you know, this, this eternal, uh, this eternal, uh, you might call it dead horse that the entire metal scene loves mm-hmm. to meet uh, of Metallica versus Megadeth. <laughs> right, and I right. say that a little facetiously. I've had these discussions for years. Of course, me too. Uh, okay. the, really, the really wonderful thing is when it comes down to it, you don't actually have to choose. You get right. both. Right. That's, that's, the, the, that's, yeah. the, that's the, the real like final word in it is for a, a fan's case. Doesn't you know? It doesn't matter if puppets or, or, or rust and peace or whatever is the better record. You got both of them, and <laughs> right. fuck yeah, and yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. That, that's you got my two great bands, two great discographies, different visions, different visions mm-hmm. of what thrash metal. Completely can be. agree, and in fact, I, I'll take it one step further. People are like, "All right, gun to your head, who's better, Metallica or Megadeth?" I'm like, "I don't know, shoot me." <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> no one, is, no one is putting a gun to my head and asking that question, so I don't have to answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. I might, over time, and like if we're talking classic era, I might have a very slight preference for Metallica, but it's really close. Well, I mean, in terms of legacy and impact, and then it gets into like what, uh, which under which uh, parameters are we trying to answer? Yeah, exactly. It gets so specific and it's so subjective, and there there really is no objective way to answer that. It's just to your taste, to your preference. What mood are you in? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what's now, your shit? Like, like you were saying, even within the same band, it's like, oh, well, I'm in this mood, so I put this record on. I'm feeling this, so I put this record on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that's exactly. the beauty of music as an art yeah, form, totally. right there. Oh yeah. I mean, I love. Yeah, I mean, so why you know, talking? You know, if we were to rank Megadeth albums, for example, uh, mm-hmm. you on any given day, uh, when it comes to Rust and Peace, Peace Cells, and even Killing Is My Business. Oh yeah. I, you're going to get a different answer from me about which of those three records I like better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, I have yeah. at different points seen each of those three records as, as my favorite. When you, know, when you mentioned Mustaine fiddling around with, with his records, yeah, I think everything that he did in the mid-2000s with all those reissues, how do you do a remix remaster campaign and make everything worse? Like, that's worse. What you're supposed oh, to I, do. I, oh, fuck. And, what, I showed John on, like, the last trip we went up to SF to play with Death Angel. We came back, and I showed him, listen to Symphony of Destruction the new way, because he hadn't he hadn't seen, like, the substantial we're, we're difference. We're just doing and a back-to-back, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. that, yeah. Or, or listen to, like, Take No Prisoners, where they, they apparently couldn't oh, find the re- back-end vocals. yeah. So he had to re-record shit, you know, 24 years later. And it's like, what? What sucks is that during that time, that was like formative years for me when I was, I knew Metallica and I was trying to find Megadeth CDs mm. at Tower and Best Buy and all this, and they didn't find. have them. They yeah. didn't fucking have them. You know, so I had a deep dive and search and, you know, even I, now to I this day, I don't listen to Megadeth. I've because I'm such a big fan and I, and I love how No, you see, could, me too. But you could put the CDs together and make them Together, yeah. And you got Yeah, I'm staring at them right now. Yeah. Now I have to like I don't listen to Megadeth on any streaming service. I have to manually I put them on my phone because they are the original yeah. mixes and masters, Same. so I can enjoy yeah. them that way. But I will. But I will say, alternately, both "Killing Is My Business" reissues are, in my in my opinion, outstanding, outstandingly better than the original. I like the second one that's like the the early 2000s one where they redid the yes. cover the first time yes. better than the newest one yes I, I but i think i still think the original is just like i think the original there's, there's album a, cover there's a quality to better. it that is you know there's a quality to it they try to tame and you know it's clean up and circumstance and, well, and, and, and you know yeah. and you know their argument is 
that cover that we have now is how they originally envisioned it. Envisioned it, yeah, sure. And, and I'm guilty of that too because our band released new songs kind of in a rush, so they they didn't they weren't released in the final fashion that we envisioned them, but they will be now on this new but, record. By so. the same, so I totally by, get that. By the I totally same turn, that. I think doing that album cover. And apparently they always hated the original one, which is just weird for us as fans because the original album sure. cover to me is so iconic and perfect. With the other, with a different logo, with the purple logo, yeah. that's old English rather than the yep. spiky gold one that we all know. Yeah. But you could certainly make the argument that you know what what they've done to it is the George Lucas like. But I always wanted I know, to yeah. have like <laughs> a bunch of bunch more Jawas walking around in the you know cantina or yeah. whatever. You know, and it's like no, yeah, no, I, I, I believe you, but about no. That, though. Dude, uh, okay, so here, we'll circle back to something you were saying earlier. We were talking about Lars's drumming ability mm -hmm. versus serving the song and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So consider uh, one thing I remember, and this is a series I never even fucked with, but I had a friend who was, I think it was uh, Adam, actually. It might have been Adam from our band, who was saying that Final Fantasy music, now this is, a, this is a series I never played, so I can't comment on it, but just he was saying that all the old stuff where they used to have it on, like, you know, MIDI, you know, mm -hmm. beeps and boops, that the music was, like, iconic and beloved by the fan base. And that later, when the series becomes successful and they move into, you know, the 2000s, now they've got, like, a whole orchestra doing the soundtrack, but they can't make any melodies you remember anymore, where the MIDI beeps and boops get stuck in your head. And that, I think, teaches you something. And I think mm -hmm. what I learned from that is, just from that uh, anecdote, is that limitation can actually be a powerful driver of creativity. Wow, yes, 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 so, yes. So how, like, Lars can't play any fill that, in the world. You, you know, there's stuff like Dave Lombardo or someone can play that Lars probably can't, mm -hmm. but he has to work. He's mm -hmm. still got to make a song that, when it comes out, is a great song. So you use the t you can view your skill set as like tools in your shed that you have. Just because you have more tools in your shed, don't mean the thing you build is going to be as good or take, better. Take you know? take the John Carpenter Halloween that was made over two weeks in fucking Pasadena, and compare it to either of the remakes that were made with oh, huge yeah. budgets and all the resources in the world. And there you go. Yeah, I mean, the beauty yeah, of, uh, I'm sure John Carpenter at the time, you know, if he could have had the resources of those remakes, like, would have been over the moon. But, as, dude, you make such a great point. Because of the limitations, it came out as, as magical as it did. And, and yeah, and I would I would say, you know, again, having a drummer on the show right now, the biggest revelation for me when The Killing Is My Business reissue came out in 2001 or 2002 was Gar. And I had I had grown up knowing all this lore about, you know, Gar is that he's the praying mantis and him and Chris Poland brought jazz into Megadeth. And I, you know, Absolutely. knowing Peace Cells and Killing is my business front to back as well as I do. I always thought he was a great drummer, but, you know, he was never like a favorite of mine and I never quite understood what they were saying. And then when. The Killings of My Business reissue came out, the first one, and the, and around maybe a year or two later, there was like a 5.1 surround sound piece cells or something. I don't even I don't even know who did that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, you can go into depth with that, yeah. Man, hearing Gar in those two settings, I was like, oh. <laughs> drum like, set was haunted. Oh that's my! The, that's God. the ongoing joke that his drum set was haunted uh, with all the ghost notes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. 
But yes, he cap- capability-wise, he schooled Lars Ulrich, but songwriting-wise, I don't think he played a role in that. So there's the difference. You can focus on your chops or you can focus on more right. things. Right, and that's, yeah. uh, you know, wow. Yeah, when I had Elvison on the podcast, to that point, too, we were we were talking about, um, you know, mechanics versus Four Horsemen. He was telling me that the the way he learned mechanics was the Ron McGovney way from No Life to Leather. And so he doesn't play it anything like Cliff played it or anything like so. It, and that's part of the reason why it is the vibe is, remains different than, you know, between the two versions. I, I by the way, and this is sure. a funny thing to say on a Metallica podcast, I prefer Megadeth mechanics to Metallica the Four Horsemen. <laughs> I prefer Metallica mechanics. How about that? Uh, yeah, I mean the, uh, <laughs> the I mean, demo, the lyrics, the Hetfield lyrics are far superior to the relatively terrible Mustaine lyrics on Mechanics. But the ferocity yeah. and the bite and the tempo and the I get you, you know, and the no sweet home Alabama joint in the middle, no sweet home Alabama joint in the middle, and and yeah, uh, and, riffage. and and Mustaine yelling "fuck yeah." It is the best part. Uh, this is to your point about the Final Fantasy and all that. <laughs> it's about limitations in art. And I, the limitations in art, yeah. Fantasy. I don't know yeah, yeah. anything about it. And, 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 and well, but the difficulty even in in recreating something with when you have all the resources and experience, and yet you can't capture this original thing. So I was a big fan in the '90s of all of the lore and myth surrounding the MIA Axl Rose. Okay. So I, you know, it's like I was, I was in high school when Appetite came out, you know, and I was graduating mm. from high school when the Illusion Records came out. So I, I lived through all of that. I'm from Indiana. Oh. Axl and Izzy were from Indiana. So, you know, it's like, I was, I love that band. And, you know, there was a tour with Metallica who was, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was a thrash. Did you see that? Uh, no, unfortunately. No? Okay. I was a thrash metal dude that, absolutely hated like guns and, and and despised, yeah i despised anything that was spandexy and hairsprayish right. and and i had a soft spot for guns and roses even back then. that's cool they were a little different though they were rock and roll that first yeah. record way, way more like grit down to earth fucking and gutter s- than any of that slash Chrissy was wearing shit, that yeah. uh slash was wearing that old damaging shirt yeah. leather. well he was wearing the he, he had a, the shirt with the uh the uh, old old Metallica logo with like the outline around it. Oh, like the yeah, the Young Metal Attack one. Yes, that's the shirt. Uh, God, yeah. God, I love having you guys on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, Slash, he he was he almost replaced uh, Jeff Young. Ah, so, interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah, and they even they were even jamming together. Sick. That's awesome. That'd be a really different record without way Shane, different you know? record. You, oh, yeah, man, yeah. Sure. Hey, but dude, but everything you know, as much as I'm, I'm like. You know, I'm a scientific atheist in my worldview and all that, but I feel like the world events are held together by this mm-hmm. kind of glue, almost mm-hmm. as if everything's planned out to end up being the way it Some becomes. kind of mathematical it's, organization, because as much as it's fun to do the Marvel what if, mm-hmm. there's so much of this stuff that happened exactly the way it was supposed to. Like, there's no, yeah. there's no Metallica without Kirk Hammett. Like, come on, man. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, yeah, yeah. and you can what if Exodus with, with Kirk and what a huge, I mean, he taught Gary Holt how to play guitar. Um, right. You know, it's the hand, and and by the way, that you know, you brought up murder in the front row. My favorite thing about the documentary mm-hmm. is that is all the love it gives Kirk, because right. for, for, sure. for all of the because that paints him in a completely different light of where he's kind of yeah. he's not the uh, he's not the you know and that's only over, because he's, he's over, not put overshadowed on by these the way the others are. yeah with Metallica he's he's you know overshadowed by two massive personalities mm-hmm. 
But in this, you really see what a hand he had in, in creating this music. Shaping that scene, yeah, because Exodus was the front runner of their scene, and he started and formed that. He was that, the so, yeah, he's got... But what I was going to tell you about Guns N' Roses and to your point about limitations and all that. So part of the lore, when all the original guys are gone and Axel's rebuilt a secret Guns N' Roses with the drummer from Primus and, you know, Robin Fink from Nine Inch Nails and, uh, you know, all these people coming in and out and Dave Navarro doing a guitar solo and Shaquille O'Neal rapping, which is the thing that really happened. <laughs> Wow. Part of that process as the as he's trying to make Chinese democracy and he had settled at one point on a lineup. And I think it was Josh Fries on drums, Ooh. the bass player from The Replacements, who, uh, fun fact, was in the band technically longer than Duff McKagan <laughs> at Man. one point. So, so part of that is he had to get the new lineup to gel. He had them re-record Appetite in the studio. And it was Appetite plus Patience and You Could Be Mine. They re-recorded it just to get comfortable together and whatever. And it was never meant for release and it's never come out or anything, but it does exist. Uh, you know the Adam Sandler movie, Big Daddy? Yeah. yeah. At the end of Big Daddy, over the closing credits, you hear Sheryl Crow covering Sweet Child of Mine. Sweet Child of Mine, yeah, yeah. I remember that. When Sweet Child of Mine, perfect song for that movie. When Sweet Child of Mine is over, Sheryl Crow version... The Guns N' Roses version kicks in for the last little section. Of, and this is like, you know, you've left the theater at this point. Okay. The Guns N' Roses version kicks in. That Guns N' Roses version, given the climate at the time, you know, when when uh, the studio... It is the 90s, yeah. The, yeah, the studio goes to Axel and says, hey, we want to use Sweet Child of Mine. It's the re-recorded new lineup version. Shit. And it's the only place where that appears, and it's obvious, you know, and it's a shrewd move to not have to pay performance royalties to the old gotcha. guys. But here's the whole full circle point that I'm about to make, and there was a lawsuit over this, as I understand it. The opening lick, the do 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 do, from Slash, mm -hmm. is sampled from the original because these, you know. Robin Fink and Buckethead yeah. and these like brilliant guitar players could not capture that exact vibe, moment, energy, sound of that iconic opening to that song. Yeah. And okay. so they just sampled the original. <laughs> exactly. Wow. <laughs> yeah. After all that, after all shows, that goes to show you, man. Goes to show. Indeed. Time and place. And is, and is Buckethead a better guitar player than Slash? Yes, technically. Technically, yeah, sure, maybe. But... By no means is he slash. By and no means he, is he anywhere yeah. close. Yeah. yeah, well, art, art and craft aren't the same thing. Yes. Yeah, fully. Yes. Craft, it, it, I view technical skill as craft, okay? And craft's important. As a musician or an artist, you should work on your craft. But it's not the thing that defines you. It's a vehicle mm -hmm. to get your art out. It's mm -hmm. not the grounds of criteria that's how mm -hmm. like you know that's how like ramones or motorhead records or something are great yeah those are the you know how do those mm -hmm. guys stack up against buckethead you know but i'd rather listen to that a lot of like most of the time so mm -hmm. it's about art and craft uh, a lot of musicians don't necessarily see the separation mm. art is like what you're writing how you're writing it the emotion the feeling the idea craft is just how do you fucking actually do it? <laughs> and uh, having, yeah. yeah, how do you do it technically? So having the, the guitar player who can play anything you can conceive of is only even necessary if you're trying to do an art 
that needs to use that. A lot of mm-hmm. shit doesn't. If you're if you're in Motorhead, you don't need to use the fact that he can do sweep arpeggios or something. You know, something technically difficult, for instance. Uh, but you know, if you're trying to make music, you know, in the, along the vibe of Ingve Mounsing, well, now you need a guy who does. It's, it's yeah. the craft needed doesn't mm-hmm. determine the value of the art. They're they're two separate categories. And you should judge according to art, not craft. Craft is a I am, art. That, I am that's my so grateful. I am so grateful that Kurt Cobain was a terrible singer. And I am or a limited singer. A limited singer. A limited singer. And and I'm and I'm so grateful that Tom G. Warrior was a terrible guitar player. See? I yeah, mean those out. perfect records would they be perfect <laughs> if they didn't have all those limitations uh, including yeah. the technical skill that was limiting mm-hmm. them I mean you're not gonna you're but not, yeah, you're or, not or, gonna or, get or procreation of without, like Ozzy Osbourne's nasal tone and Bill Ward's like uh Bill Ward by his own admission can't really keep time that well so he plays a fill every measure or two mm-hmm. there you go well, <laughs> it sounds like how they do and, and and this gets to like the George Lucas thing where oftentimes people don't understand what made them cool and uh, t- to that point, you know, I've seen Danzig complain in interviews about how Chuck Biscuits uh, would speed up and slow down and his tempos were all over the place live and mm. how irritating that was. And it's like, yeah. And Johnny Kelly, typo negatives in my top five bands of all time. But Ooh. Johnny Kelly and Danzig, it's like, yeah, dude, Chuck Biscuits was your soul. Like, <laughs> like that's in that the speed ups and slowdowns and mistakes like. It's part of the energy and the. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Slayer, dude, Slayer. <laughs> yes, is Paul Bostuff a more technically skilled drummer than Dave Lombardo? I would say yes. Is Dave Lombardo the best drummer for Slayer? Uh, no yes. fucking question about it. Definitely. Yeah. Hey, dude, and you know what? As a musician, this is important to me because we're in a world where more and more uh, you're hearing less and less music made by. Uh, I guess flesh and blood musicians in a sense where, mm-hmm. where a lot of time I feel like it's about what you can come up with on a mental level by, because a, a computer can essentially can make this huge make range of yeah. sound that you used to need. There's one very, very specific guy with this very specific skill set. So one of the questions I think for music, music in general is how much is that going to matter going forward? And I'm very much in the mm. camp that says, yes, there is no replacement for that ever. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the guy betting on John Henry against the steam shovel. God damn it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you know, Chuck Schuldner, if he wanted the drummer from Dark Angel, he had to get the drummer from Dark Angel. Now you can yeah. go online and buy some plugins that sound just like Gene Oakland. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's you. like, but it's never the same, you know. No, so I'm, I'm with you very much, and this might be my, uh, you know, just old timey mentality. You know, we still think side A and side B when we're write, writing mm-hmm. a record. Mm-hmm. That, as far as we know, most people are going to listen to on Spotify, you know, yeah. or something in, in, like in, that. In a, in a playlist that's going to be like neo thrash sure. hits <laughs> or whatever. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and, and we're like, what's the side A? What's the side B? And, that, and, that, and that's flow? fine. That, that, it still that, matters to me it because still matters. yeah, that's how it should be. And, 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 and by doing it the way you're doing it, it's there for the people who want to consume it the way that, like, the three of us prefer to. And then mm-hmm. it, can, it can still be chopped up and delivered. And, you know, it's like why Metallica and ACDC and, and uh, Tool was the last big holdout. Like, why those bands didn't want to be 
on iTunes because they were like, well, I don't want you to just buy a track. I want you to buy our album, and I want you to, I don't want sure. you to put it in whatever order you want. I want you to hear it the way we intended. And I, I got you. You know, it's like, but if you still create it with that intention, then it's there that way. And then when mm-hmm. it gets parceled out, like that's up to the listener. But sure, yeah. yeah. I love no, it. but we we got to do what we want ourselves, and that's what mm-hmm. we want, so we do it. You know, we try to make it so every song holds up. So if you chop it up, it's still great there. But if you really want the the full ten out of ten experience, you got to do it the way you used to. You know, and I think because I think it it's just the reward for putting some real attention span into a piece of art, whether it's a you know well written t- and well TV series or a great book or a mm-hmm. record or anything uh, that just like your reward is limited if you're only putting two three minutes of mental energy into it mm-hmm. if you put like an hour of mental energy into it you, you know and it's good and it's it fulfills whatever you were trying to get out of it your reward is greater your investment your emotional investment in the art determines your reward i think and i think that the record as a format helps facilitate that so that's why i still believe in the record uh absolutely agreed and and and, and you know and as somebody who used to look at my uh, somewhere in time poster and study all, study all the details, right? Like, look at this little thing over here and this little thing over there. Like, you know, that, um, imagination that is required to sit there and look at the art and read the liner notes. And yeah, I'm, yeah, and how did they see this art connecting to the music I'm hearing? How did mm-hmm. the band, like, why did they think that was a connection? Maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not. Uh, or the record, you said Somewhere in Time. Wouldn't it be so sad if all you knew from Somewhere in Time was, like, the opening track in Wasted Years, and I think Stranger in a Strange Land was a single, mm-hmm. right? You'd miss out on fucking Deja Vu, dude. <laughs> one of the most underrated tracks in the goddamn discography, and one of, like, three times Iron Maiden plays a thrash beat. Uh, you know? <laughs> that's, wow, that's a good point. Never thought about that yeah, thrash beat. Dude. And, and yeah. dude, that little like that's going in that like laser harmony. Oh, dude, that song gets me really hard. That's what I, I'd take that <laughs> one over Run to the Hills any day. Yeah, it gets day. me. I didn't mean gets me hard like that, but sure. Why? Why? Hey, why, no, it's, it's why, staying in. You know? I do post production, but that's staying in. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you can. Cool. You can. Sure. Yeah. It gets, I mean, it gets me a lot. But you can say so you can say Deja Vu, the riffs and drumming get me hard because they might as well. You know. I uh, love. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I, and, and by the way, I love Somewhere in Time and Seventh Son, which are records that get. Seven Bad Son's rap. my favorite one, dude. Wow, one. that is awesome. Did you see them Seven. when they when they did that tour? Um, we we uh, played yes. with them. What? Yeah, we played with them. Wow. Battle of San Bernardino. Wow. They opened with Moonchild. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna. You know, I could be a poser and be like, "Oh yeah, I totally saw you guys," but I'm going to confess that I got. Oh, no, it's I, I, we played at two thirty in the afternoon. I was gonna I, say. I was, trying to, I was trying to go party with my friends because we were at the Iron Maiden show. But I was like, "Wait, no, I'm here to fucking do a job. This is awesome." Yeah, <laughs> I, I will freely confess. So that way different Maiden experience up, that time. I literally yeah. showed up right as Maiden was starting. Fuck yeah, that's but cool. not because not because I wouldn't have wanted to watch you. I I didn't t- until this moment know who else was playing. <laughs> That's fine, dude. You know, yeah. man, I'll, I'll tell you, I got to have, uh, I got to chat with uh, Nico McBrain and, and Yannick cares a bit over uh. fish dinner. <laughs> and, don't, and don't those two seem yeah, like the most? The catering and I, I, I mean, as much as as much as you want to pick Steve Harris's brain or or Dickinson, 
as you know kind of the intellectual uh fathers mm-hmm. of the band nico and yannick seem like the most fun fun jokes yeah, yeah. they were the guys that were that, that i raised to so you know I, anybody and i in that catering room when i'm going to get my dinner you're damn right i'm talking with them so you know and uh i never met anyone from metallica but same story you know and, and i i personally feel when i talk to art, artists that i like i get a little that starstruck feeling but i don't get I like real stuff. I want to ask them about and talk to them right. about regarding their actual Cause you, cause music. Because you, know, you feel like you know them. I care about. It's not the same as a celebrity thing where it's like, oh, I see that person and they're famous. I think for fans like us and this particular kind of subculture, uh, we're so there are such a part of our into, life. Yeah. We're so invested that we feel like we know them and we can talk about it. And, and then, right, we, and then yeah. we have to remember when we're talking to them that they don't know us. <laughs> right. I know everything about yeah. them, but you know, a goddamn detail about me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Pretty you know, it, here, here, here's a full circle moment to land the plane. We were talking about the international appeal of Metallica. I showed my kids, they're not like, you know, into metal. They, they obviously mm. are familiar with Metallica and like Metallica and typo and Megadeth. My, my son, cool. my son uh, refers to Megadeth as uh the skeleton with the green hand. Nice. Or, 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 so no, sorry, the skeleton holding up the green light. Cool. I showed yeah. them. Uh, I showed them the uh, Flight Six 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 documentary, um, specifically to, aside from the amazing songs and performances, which is the number one reason to show them that, mm. but to also show the power of music and art to translate literally across the globe, and how yeah. that you know that that documentary and that tour goes to. And there's that places. one girl in the front row of every goddamn show, <laughs> like, followed them every single, I don't know what, how many credit cards she had to fucking, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then absolutely. they have, like, the, the Catholic priest in Brazil with all the maiden tattoos that uses, that's like, hilarious. maiden songs in his sermons. Like, right? That's, you know, uh, yeah, it was just <laughs> magical and, and part of, um you know, for all of our div- divided our divided culture in America right now, it's yeah. its so amazing to put on something like Flight 66 and be like, man, Canada, Brazil, Australia, Chile, like uh, the Beauty. UK, it's the, we're all fucking There's sing- something we can't explain through something we just perceive through our auditory sense and it yes. just moves us. It, 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 we feel alive, you know what I mean? When you're a band like Metallica or Megadeth or Iron Maiden, it's one thing a lot of bands have people singing along to their lyrics and that's amazing. And that's something that you want as a musician, of course, but man, Metallica, yeah. Megadeth, Maiden, people sing along to the guitars. The riffs. Yeah. People chant out the riffs <laughs> louder than you can hear the band play the riff. Dude, those Megadeth fans yeah, in Argentina turning, turning, oh, uh, man. symphony <laughs> destruction, just into like the audience riffing. Yeah. That's badass. Yeah, dude, or fucking, uh, you know, Fear of the Dark, the song in general, you almost can't listen to the album version now. Mm-hmm. You know, because you, you're like, where's the whoa? Yeah, you know, you the mean, audience. that's like part of the song hey, now. Hey, you can't even, you, you, do, know? you doing that just now literally gave me goosebumps on my arm. So <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take yeah. your I'll take your erection and, and, and up you. There you uh, go. Uh, goosebumps rom- and romantic butterflies. On the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, my, my erection over over Nico McBrain's uh, symbol accents on Deja Vu. That's what that was over. <laughs> uh, well, guys, I one thousand percent would love to have both of you back anytime. And then uh, if you guys get an opportunity to go back and check out the podcast, um, I know as big Bathory fans um, have Jonas Ackerland on. Oh no shit! Right on. Oh, and cool. One of my claim, one of my like favorite little dorky things in my in my life is I, I 
once upon a time was a reporter for MTV and I was doing, I was writing a written piece for the website about a new Britney Spears video. And it was my, uh, it was my opportunity to work Candlemas and Bathory into an MTV news story. (laughs) How did you do that? Jonas Auckland. Jonas. Yeah. He's a film director. So he was, he was in Bathory before they did. Oh yeah. 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 He he was, he was, he was, he was, he was, yeah, he he did the Lords of Chaos movie, but he's mostly known as a music video director. Guys. I mean, Lady Gaga, Madonna, Britney Spears. I think he's done some U2 and some uh, like yes. newer Metallica stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He did. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I know who we're talking about. He then. did uh, uh, Whiskey in the Jar and Turn the Page. And then and then the uh, the song from Hardwired that has uh, the kids playing Mayhem playing Metallica, mm. <laughs> which is super weird, but kind of awesome. Um, but yeah, he uh, yeah, he was an old, old school drummer for Bathory pre first album. Mm. And his first music video credit the candle mass, yeah. was Candlemas Bewitched. Yeah. Uh, Which, oh, yeah. That, the stomping train yep. of dudes in that is the best. The Messiah Mosh. <laughs> the, the Messiah Mosh. Messiah Mosh, dope. Yeah. Yeah, that's him. So, so yeah, so that was my opportunity however many years ago to be like, I'm going to put the words Bathory and Candlemas into this Britney Spears story. Oh <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well done. Well done. A man oh, yeah. of culture. There you Indeed. go. <laughs>